This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. It's the beginning of a three-hour, what are we going to call it, brainstorm. We're talking three topics today. Home, heaven, and uh, pushing your kids to excellence. It's going to be a great show for you. We'll be getting into the uh, the deep uh, discussion about, is is there really no place like home? What does home ownership do when our number one investment is a home? Do we then tend to keep, you know, some of the the bad element out of our neighborhood? Does uh, does the fact that your number one investment involves a home mean, you know, maybe a gated community would, community would be better? Keep as many people out of the neighborhood as you can? We'll be speaking uh, about home ownership a little bit uh, later, actually in just a few minutes this morning, um, and uh, a pretty interesting discussion. When we, when we hear the research that's been going on about what actually happens to communities because of home ownership, and we'll talk about... Also, the kind of the up and down of the economic market. We'll get to that, of course. Also, we got to talk Indiana politics. Today's the big, uh, the big primary. We'll be getting to that as well. Find out what uh, Donald Trump's really his odds are for closing out this uh, this this primary season. He would love to blow a you know present the knockout blow to Ted Cruz, but will he be able to? We'll get to that in just a few minutes. But first, let's get to the headlines with Jameson. Jameson, what's going on around the rest of the country? Thanks, Matt. Detroit public schools are closed for the second day in a row as teachers in Detroit are continuing a sick-out stage yesterday. The protest started after news that the district couldn't continue to pay teachers after June 30th. The Detroit school system is already $500 million in operating debt. While teacher strikes aren't allowed in Michigan, a January ruling says there is nothing illegal with the staged sick-outs. An American was killed by ISIS in Iraq today. The American service member was killed after ISIS troops broke through a Kurdish-controlled front. The U.S. Defense Secretary called it a combat death and announced that the U.S. responded by dropping more than 20 bombs onto the war front. The service member was one of many U.S. ground forces in Iraq and Syria, currently serving in a non-combatant role. According to President Obama, their purpose is to train, advise, and support U.S.-friendly forces. Democrat donors are having more faith in Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton raised $35 million in April. $10 $10 million more than rival Bernie Sanders. Sanders' support has dropped sharply since March when he outraced Clinton for the third straight month. Sanders announced that he'd be laying off hundreds of his campaign staffers and would currently focus his campaign on winning California's delegates. And Johnson & Johnson have lost their second lawsuit in three months, as a jury in St. Louis awarded $55 million in damages to Gloria Ristison. Ristison claimed to have used Johnson & Johnson's talcum powder for more than 35 years before developing ovarian cancer. While the American Cancer Society says it's not clear if talcum powder increases cancer risk, a lack of evidence hasn't slowed juries who have now awarded $130 million to plaintiffs in the U.S. And those are the updates. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Jameson. Wow. Talcum powder. Who'd have thunk? Over prolonged use, it sounds like. Right. Maybe. Well, I'd say anything over prolonged use. That's scary. Yeah. Boy, how do you back off talcum powder? That was the, that was the main staple 
for your baby many moons ago. Now it's don't touch the stuff. Yeah, don't, your people kids, don't go near Your him. kids are going to get talc lung. Talc lung. <laughs> you got to wear a respirator just to diaper your baby. Oh, that's incredible. Um, Carly Fiorina took that fall. Yes. And which is scary. That's a big deal. You've seen the video? Uh, yeah. Yeah, she just sort of turns around and whoop, bloop, gone. But, you know. I, th- would... I, I think Ted Cruz is taking undue criticism. About what? He didn't push her. No, but there's a lot of, of, of places out there that are trying to draw this narrative that he looked, saw she fell, turned, and kept shaking hands. Yeah, no, he was... But oh. if you watch the video, he walks out of the back. Right. He's looking left, looking right, just shaking hands, talking to people. He's not looking forward. He didn't even see her fall no. off the stage. I think but, it's, his head looks like it goes down, but it's because he's shaking someone's But hand. people are like, he saw, she fell, he turned, shook hands. No. What a jerk. No, come on. Like, no, you're just trying. He didn't. There's plenty of things to criticize him about. Yeah. Don't make not stuff that. up. And, I mean, more, a more interesting conversation is just the symbolism. People are now saying she's falling like Cruz's poll numbers. Okay. It's just rude. It's rude. Poor Carly Fiorina. But you know what? You, you know that Trump's, Trump wouldn't say anything about a no. woman falling. He'd move on. Then he picks Carly. Carly's perfectly nice. By the way, she fell off the stage the other day. Did anybody see that? And Cruz didn't do anything. I was a... Even I would have helped her, okay? No, it's true. But they're, they're plotting. Wow, that's really Even I would have. She fell off. She just went down. She went down a long way, right? And she went down right in front of him, and he was talking. He kept talking. He didn't even look like... That was a weird deal. Hmm. Watch the video. Yeah. She falls off. There's someone immediately there to help her. So, I mean, it's not like it's... She's down there. It's not like it's not like she went to crowd surf and the crowd parted and she yeah. just hit the cement, you know. <laughs> Nobody caught Carly. She jumps off the front of the stage. Nobody caught her. No, um That's one more of, that's probably more if Ted Cruz tried to crowd surf. Yeah. In certain audiences, <laughs> Ted right? Ted Cruz, exactly. Like if he tried to crowd surf the the Senate. Oh yeah. Everyone would just clank. He just hit the hit the ground. They they're saying, um, Hillary Clinton's people are saying, basically, Donald, keep talking about women, because yep. every time you talk about women, we make more money. Yeah. Two and a half million dollars roughly raised by Hillary Clinton from that one comment about women, I guess just recently. I'm assuming it's the one. The woman card comment. The woman card in front of uh, Christie's wife. Yes. You can go to her website, apparently, and get a, an official Hillary Clinton women's card. Oh, really? It's like a credit card. What does it get you? Basically nothing except you can flash your woman your woman card. You know, I'd go, you got to get them and then make, you know, use your women's card to get your husband to do something else like I, the dishes. I guess. <laughs> Don't make me pull the women's card. I love how they try to make, you know, campaign swag essentially. Yeah. And that's crazy. Marco Rubio used to sell water. Yeah. Maybe he still does. Maybe he's still on his website. A sweat towel. Yeah. Yeah. Not bad. Hey, um, today's the day. Indiana poll or the Indiana primary today. Yep. It's got to get done today. What do you think? Is it going to go Trump or Cruz and Trump's up by double digits? It's up by double digits, except in one poll, Cruz was up. Just one. Yeah. But I mean, that's when that's when they talk about. You <laughs> in gotta, one poll. Yeah. But if he if if Trump wins this, many are saying he just, you know, it's just you just ski down into the lodge. 
The Cleveland Lodge. The Cleveland Lodge. And get your nomination. <laughs> um, Trump uh, he has basically got it all planned out. He's going to win Indiana, and then Hillary's up next. I would like to get on to Hillary. You know, we've beaten all of these folks, and Indiana is very important because if I win, that's the end of it. He's in a diner. Is that what he said? He was sampling local fare. He had a Reuben. Oh, did he? That's what the news said. It's a great sandwich. Who cares what he ate? <laughs> Just in the middle of this report, and he ordered a Reuben. Okay. Okay. Whatever. Nice. Um, it's a good sandwich. But don't don't be denied. Cruz thinks he can save us from this uh, Trump fest. The entire country is depending on the state of Indiana to pull us back from this cliff. He sounds like a pastor. There's a, is there another clip from him? Yeah. Yep. Do we get behind a campaign that is based on yelling and screaming and cursing and insults and anger and hatred? No. Or do we continue to unify behind a positive, optimistic, forward-looking, conservative campaign? Hillary Clinton. <laughs> Who's he talking about? Oh, himself, he's talking about himself. himself. Many times you, you wonder if you stumble out of politics into a revival yeah, that when felt, Ted Cruz starts talking. Because he does. He, he alters his voice in a way that you feel like... At the same time, President Obama has done the same thing. Yeah, no, Hillary, it's, it's Hillary a, Clinton does the same it's thing. It's a speaking technique. Yeah. Right? It's kind of reverential. It's Well, the reality is Hillary Clinton's the one that's going to play nice for us. I will work against the divisiveness, the mean-spiritedness... The hateful rhetoric that we are hearing from Donald Trump and others. Who are the others? Donald. Okay. And the others. Oh, and, and Bernie. Is Bernie <coughs> having hateful rhetoric? Oh, yeah. Bernie is, yeah. Okay. Remember? Don't you remember? They didn't like each other. Well, I know they don't like each other. I don't know if it's hateful she's rhetoric. Still, she's still probably wondering what he's doing. Bernie? Like, yeah. why is he hanging around? He yeah. He's convinced he's going to have a contested convention. I know, so is Cruz. It's like Donald and Hillary are the only ones that know or think that they're going to win. I mean, with, I mean, outside of a convention. Right. It's a hard way to go. Over the weekend, I think Arizona had a uh, Republican delegate gathering, and Cruz's people came in and, can, and uh, got several... Stole. Delegates stole. or stole, I guess you could say, if you're from one side of the issue. Uh, delegates and got them to commit to a second round balloting to go I'm for Cruz. You. That's what he's his total game plan now is the second ballot. Donald will be in trouble if he doesn't uh, win first round. He's just got to go in there with the delegates. Um, interesting. Lou Holtz yes. endorses Trump. Yep. So that's two sports legend heroes from Indiana. I don't know if Lou is actually from Indiana, but Coach Notre Dame. He probably he's like adopted son. Yeah, put it that way. Lou Holtz endorsing Trump. By the way, uh, a lot of interesting talk coming from other senators now. Even Orrin Hatch, Utah's Orrin Hatch, is even saying he's he's confident Trump will eventually, you know, get his act together and turn presidential. Which well, is you know, it seems like some of the uh, maybe the. Elites are starting to say, it looks like Trump's going to run with this thing, so we probably ought to I found this unify. yesterday. Yeah. This is in the Washington Post. The title of the article is, Republicans have a massive electoral map problem. Oh, boy. That has nothing to do with Donald Trump. 
Huh. What it says is uh, if Clinton wins the 19 states and Washington, D.C., that every Democratic nominee has won from 92 to 2012, she will end up with 242 electoral votes. Right? So every state that's gone Democrat from 92 to 2012, 242, and then you add Florida. Yeah. That's 29 votes. She has 271. She's done. You Game need 270 over. for the electoral votes. Yeah. Now, the Republican map, whether it's Trump, Cruz, or as it calls it, the ideal Republican nominee, and in parentheses, Paul Ryan, you know, if he yeah. does one of those convention uh, surprises, um, is decidedly less friendly. There are 13 states that have gone for the GOP presidential nominee in each of the last six elections. Those states, their electoral votes total 102. Oh, boy. Right? That means the eventual nominee has to find at least 168 more electoral votes to get to 270. So the Democrat would theoretically need 28 votes. That's that blue wall, they call it. Yeah, the coasts, basically. Yeah. The coasts, some of the upper yeah. Midwest. So the, the Democrats need, two, need uh, 28 electoral votes. The Republicans need 168. If, tr- if trends stay the same as to which states normally go which way, then you have the But the Donald said he's going to carry New York. He'll carry New York, even though it's a Democratic state and... You know, 300 or so. Now, this starts out by saying that uh, Political reported on a Florida poll conducted by a business group in the state that showed Hillary Clinton beating Donald Trump by 13 points and Donald or, and Ted Cruz by nine. In which so, state? Florida. In Florida. So they're, they're showing there's a poll in Florida showing that she's going to win that state. So just kind of going off yeah. the trends, she needs... She has a very, it seems like an easier path, the oh. Democrat does, than the Republican does. Right. So it has nothing to do with the candidate. Mm. It just has to do with your blocks, the numbers. You've got, they've got the, I mean, think of that. If all you have to do is tie down 17 states, you just go to 17 states. You go to 18 states. Right. And that's normally how the election happens. Yeah. At this point, everyone's just staying at their headquarters and they don't really care about what states but have their primary. But what everybody fails to remember is this is Donald Trump who picked off... 17 other candidates, were one they, by one. Were they candidates? Well, were they viable candidates? Half of them were. <laughs> it's uh, it's going to be a crazy thing. So, But today, Indiana, you're pretty much, you're going to set the pace. So it's all in your hands, Indiana. <sighs> be careful. Be careful. The reality is this is what's going on in our world, right? You may not love either of the leaders, but uh, this is your country. These are your people, and uh, these are our problems. So let's get serious about it today. Um, And we'll talk about it a lot tomorrow with Joe Cannon when he uh, comes in, our Washington insider, to give us kind of a forward look at uh, now what? After, After the Indiana primary is done, now what goes on? What's the next focus? We'll take a break, and when we come back, we're going to be talking about homeownership. Is it what it's cracked up to be. You know, it's always been the belief that uh, homeownership, one of the most important things we can do in this country to strengthen community and uh, just strengthen the economy. Is it true? Is it true that having a home actually creates a stronger community? Stick with us, folks. We've got some interesting research and the researcher who performed it up next right here on the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back.
Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, from the white picket fence, the red shutters on the window, maybe a wraparound porch with a rocking chair, everyone has an image of their dream home. And for decades, owning a home has been a major status symbol uh, for most Americans. It's usually the most important and largest financial investment of their lives. It also provides uh, individuals and families with a sense of community. However, how have our nation's various housing crises changed the meaning of home ownership? And how has the need for a perfectly crafted community become the source of residential segregation? Joining us today is Dr. Brian McCabe, author of No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Home Ownership. Dr. McCabe analyzes the challenges of home ownership as it continues to uh, you know, be the main driving uh, wealth driver in the United States. He's here today on the phone to talk with us about uh, this ideology of home ownership and community. Dr. Brian McCabe, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, Matt. Thanks for having me. Great to have you. Talk to me about... Uh, your book, um, you're, you, it sounds like, Dr. McCabe, you're questioning home ownership, which is like a staple of, uh, of Americana, isn't it? Yeah, no, it sure is. Um, and, and I think that is what the book uh, sort of sets out to do, right? So as you, as you mentioned, the, the book sort of set around this idea that home ownership is the most important tool that we have for building wealth today. And right, we um, that sort of came into focus even more so after the housing crisis. But that's something that, that hasn't changed that much, right? Americans have more wealth invested in their homes than we do in, in any other asset. So it continues to be this this really important tool for building wealth. Um, and at the same time, right, we, we tend to think of home ownership as, a, as, as maybe the most important way to build stronger communities, right? This idea that homeowners are more involved in their communities. Um, they're more interested in sort of keeping their neighbor neighborhoods up. They socialize and they interact with their neighbors more. Um, and so for, you know, at least a hundred years, I, I trace this back to, um, to the great depression and to the new deal and housing policies then, but we've thought that homeownership has been this really important tool for building communities. Um, and what I argue in the book is that because homeownership has become so important for building wealth, right? Because we're so interested in building wealth through housing, um, it really shapes the way that people become involved in their communities. And often when homeowners do become involved in their communities, right, they don't do so in, in a way that we necessarily think is civic or broadly broadly citizenship-oriented or community-oriented. Um, but instead, right, we're getting involved in our neighborhoods as a way to protect our property values, right. Right? to protect our wealth. Um, and, and those kinds of activities that homeowners are engaging in uh, aren't always uh, geared at creating better, stronger, more stable communities, right? They're, they're geared at protecting property values, and that may cut against the ideology of, of homeownership as um, the sort of foundation of strong communities. So oh, that's yeah. the, the tension that I want to expose in the book. And, and you find, you're finding that in your research. It's When we buy a home, we really do. I mean, we go to our homeowners' meetings, and we're not usually saying, how do we unify the neighborhood and, and bring everybody yeah, in? Instead, it's more, yeah. you know, why did Billy build a shed? Because sheds make decrease our property value. Yeah, no, that's exactly right. And, you know, I look, I use some data that's from, um, it's called the Social Capital Community Survey, but it really asks about the kinds of things that people do when they get involved in your community. So are, do you vote? Do you uh, volunteer? Do you attend town meetings? Do you join social groups, you know, uh, PTAs or membership groups? And, and what I find is once you um, sort of account for some differences between homeowners and renters, right, homeowners are involved in a, a relatively small set of activities at a higher rate than renters, right? But they, they're more likely to vote than renters, 
They're more likely to go to a community meeting where town politics are being discussed, right? Those sorts of things that you might do if you're trying to protect your property values. But on the other hand, when we look more broadly at civic engagement, so did you join a sports league in your neighborhood? Are you volunteering in your community? Do you socialize kind of regularly with your neighbors? Um, what I find is that when you look at homeowners and renters, they're actually not all that different, right? So on these broad measures of, of, of civic engagement and socializing with neighbors, homeowners and renters, you know, actually look pretty similar. Um, and, and related to this, though, I think the, the interesting finding from this quantitative portion is what actually drives civic engagement, volunteering and joining membership groups. It's not whether or not you own your home. It's how long you've lived in your neighborhood. Right. So people that live in their neighborhood for a long time, right, they're more likely to socialize with their neighbors. They're more likely to join those groups. And there was a time in the U.S. when buying a home and being stable in your community, right, those were really associated with each other. Right. But today that's, that's not always the case, right? The, the foreclosure crisis, the housing crisis reminds us that, you know, lots of people that bought homes uh, weren't able to stay in their communities for a long period of time. And, and one of the arguments that I make in the book is if, Housing policy, if we're really trying to encourage um, sociability in neighborhoods and community building, we should think about uh, how it is that we can encourage people to stay in their neighborhoods, regardless of whether they own or rent, right? Because renters are doing these things, too, when they stay in their neighborhood for a long period of time. Well, and aren't we also seeing with um, the millennials more people that are okay not buying a home, just renting? Yeah, no, that's right. And I, and I think that, um, you know, that comes from, from two things. I mean, they, after the housing crisis, right, there's a little bit more of a, of a hesitation on the part of millennials um, to enter into the housing market. Um, and I think at the same time, right, it, it's become a little bit harder to buy a home in the last 10 years. Right? It became very, very easy, almost too easy to buy a home. And now it's become harder. So people are pulling back. Um, but, you know, that said, I think that you know, as you mentioned, home ownership as this kind of ideology in, in America. When I was um, when I was doing my research, I looked through a lot of public opinion polls that have been asked about sort of what home ownership means and what the American dream means. Um, and and it's really interesting, even today, and even for young people, um, buying a home is still the the centerpiece of the American dream, right? It's, mm. it's more important than you know graduating from college is important to the American dream and doing better than your parents did. But home ownership still is this sort of ideology that almost all Americans uh, ascribe to, right? I remember one, one poll in the research said that um, 90% of homeowners are happy with their homeownership decision, and 75% of renters uh, aspire to ownership one day. Mm. And, you know, one of, the, one of the remarkable things about that, and I think especially in the context of our, of our current politics, we can't think of anything else that unites Americans uh, to the degree that home ownership does, right? That we all or right. almost all of us believe that buying a home is a good thing. So it's a really interesting sort of ideology that spans, you know, spans your politics. Um, even though millennials are less likely to buy homes and enter into home ownership, you know, they still do believe in the, the sort of power of home ownership. So it spans kind of all the social categories that we think um, divide people. Home ownership continues to to be one of those things that unites us. Yeah. I wonder if some of it's tied. I mean, I always have thought of home and family go together, kind of an idea yeah. where, you know, the reason I stay in my neighborhood longer is because my kids are in the schools. I'm also paying right. taxes in those areas. I mean, it's, is it, was it also, I guess, designed or I don't know if it was ever intentionally created this way, but it just seemed to support a pro family. I guess that is pro community environment. Yeah. Yeah, no, and I, and I think that's right. I mean, back in the, so the, the book traces um, some of the historical roots of our commitment to home ownership. And, um, and you know, what it, what it really comes out of, or what I think it really comes out of is, 
the early 1900s, right, 1910s and 1920s, you get a lot of people moving from kind of rural areas into cities. So in 1920 in the United States is the first time that the majority of Americans lived in cities, hmm. right? Um, and and what goes along with that is this sort of uh, this instability and, te- and the rise of being a tenant, right? This moving away from, right, we're not yet in a suburban period, but moving away from um, kind of single family or farm or a tight-knit community as people move to the city, right, looking right. for work. And so there was concern at that time in the 1920s and into the 1930s um, that part of the reason there was so much instability in American cities was because people didn't own their homes and because they, they weren't homeowners, they weren't tied to their communities, right? People were going to cities, they were looking for work. Um, you know, there's some, some threats of political radicalism, right? Bolshevism and anti-democratic movements. Um, and so there's this idea, there's this hope uh, that, that if you could make people homeowners, right, they'd be more committed to their country, they'd be more committed to their community, they'd be more patriotic. And, and in thinking about that, I think it's also important to keep in mind that in the 1920s and the 1930s, um, only about 40, 45% of Americans own their own homes, right? And compare that to the, the peak of the housing crisis, you know, 2006, 2007, um, almost 70% of Americans own their own homes. So, so it's not the case that the United States was always a nation of homeowners, and it wasn't actually until after the Second World War, um, right, and you get these kind of massive suburbanization uh, that you get the majority of Americans living in, in homes that they own. So, and, and I think that's really the period, kind of 1950s and 1960s, when we start to tie up these ideas of owning a home and single-family detached homes um, and what it means to live in a family and sort of what that ideal you know, American family looks like. Um, and, and, you know, today, uh, single-family homes are overwhelmingly owned by the people that live in them, and multifamily units, right, in, in cities are overwhelmingly rented um, by people. So there really is this connection between single-family mm-hmm. homes and home ownership and kind of and, and family life um, that, you know, that has at least a, a 50, probably a longer, 50-year, probably a longer history yeah. um, in the United States. Oh, um, it's it's It really is an interesting um, little yeah. uh, ex- exploration you've done. Again, we're speaking with Dr. Brian uh, J. McCabe. He is a, a professor, associate professor at Georgetown University. And uh, we're talking about his book, No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the American Dream. Let's take a break, Brian, come back. Um, and when we come back, I want to talk about maybe the uglier side, though, of home, and home, owner, home ownership might be that we, we also don't just create communities that, you know, include people. We might create communities that exclude, that uh, segregate. We'll talk about that as well. More with Dr. Brian McCabe on uh, his book, No Place Like Home. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Hey, today we are talking about home ownership, right? The American dream. And uh, again, with every dream, there comes a reality and a nightmare. And we've seen it in, um, you know, a lot of the the uh, mortgage crisis and the real estate uh, values dropping over the last 15 or so years as we've had, you know, some issues going on, right? Is the dream still alive, A, and and really what is the history of the dream of everybody getting a home? 
No Place Like Home is the name of the book, Wealth, Community, and the American Dream. Our guest, Brian J. McCabe, is a professor, associate professor um, at uh, Georgetown University and is the author of the book and is walking us through some of the history you may not have known about um, and just the and the research that uh, he has done on home ownership. Welcome back to the show, Dr. McCabe. Thanks for being with us. Great. Thanks again for having me. This is, um, again, I, I just love to have people be informed about it because we we historically, we've had guests on the show as well that have brought up you know, some of our, our history of maybe using real estate and home ownership as a way of moving and even segregating people mm-hmm. and like moving, yeah, you know, moving the whites to the suburbs and moving and keeping minorities in the inner cities and then eventually moving them into the suburbs just outside of the inner cities. But talk yeah. about that. Talk about what ends up happening and what you've learned in your research about how we sometimes use home ownership that way. Yeah, you know, there's um, one of the things that I wrestle with in the book that I think is a, a sort of interesting, interesting point that comes out of it is that you know we talk about homeownership as a very inclusive institution, right? That right. Um, everybody should have access to it, and once you sort of work hard enough and and save enough money, right, we're going to encourage you and help you to to buy a home. So this is something for right that, that's for everybody. It's central to what it means to be American, to our identity as citizens. Um, but but I show in the book that not only historically has homeownership been a very exclusionary institution, but actually some of the politics around homeownership today are exclusionary as well, right? So on the historical side, I mean, there's a long history of um, of redlining in the United States, right, of, of, of not lending in predominantly African-American or changing neighborhoods, right. right, which meant that there was very little credit available in those neighborhoods um, to buy homes. Uh, and that, you know, has intergenerational effects that carries on from one generation to another, right? Today, um, you know, kids when or, or young people, when they buy homes, right, they often borrow money from their parents or their parents take out equity from their homes to help their kids buy a home. So, um, so this sort of carries on from one generation to another. And we see that in the, the tremendous gap um, between blacks and whites in the home ownership rate today. It's about a 25-point gap between blacks and mm. whites. Um, in the, the, the percentage that own their own homes. So, so there's a historical set of practices, um, right, that have created um, kind of these racial gaps in home ownership. A lot of the suburbs that were originally built um, were primarily for or exclusively for whites, not even primarily for whites. So in the post-Second World War period, right, the Levitt towns and kind of other American suburbs um, were, were built for white Americans. And so that has sort of lingering consequences. And so the, the book wrestles with kind of the, the history of that exclusive part of it. And then today, though, you know, I also talked, and we mentioned this just before the break, about um, the way homeowners engage in this exclusionary politics. So one of the things that I argue in the book through a number of case studies of different towns and cities in the United States is that, you know, often by working to protect our property values, um, homeowners are working to keep particular kinds of people or particular types of land uses out of their neighborhoods, right? So um, oftentimes homeowners don't want affordable housing to be built in their neighborhoods, right? They right. see affordable housing as um, attracting people that are a lower socioeconomic status than them. Um, much of this is very racially coded language, right, especially in the suburbs. Um, and so, so, so the people will say, well, you know, I think that this is going to lower my property values. And as a taxpayer, as a taxpaying homeowner, Right. I don't want this to lower right, the value of my largest investment. Um, but what that means is that right, lower income folks don't have the opportunity to move to high opportunity neighborhoods. Right? Right. Homeowners are working to exclude them from, from their neighborhoods. 
um, working to exclude certain kinds of land uses, right? Things that we don't, you know, a homeless shelter, for example, in a city, um, right? There's often these um, sort of nimby battles within cities to, to keep undesirable land uses out of our neighborhoods because we think that um, those are going to lower our property value. So, so the the sort of point that I that I try to bring out in the book is that our, our, our intense focus on property values through housing um, often means that we're creating these communities that are more segregated, that are less integrated, that are less inclusive, right? That are more racially segregated because we're intent on protecting protecting our property values. So, mm. so it really challenges this question of whether homeownership is an inclusive institution, right? Or is it something that leads us to be exclusive in our politics and in our behavior? And I, I think it's just a great idea to ask your, everybody to ask themselves that. Do, yeah. do, how do we use it? Do I, how do I think, like when they are building more apartments in my neighborhood area, do, does that bother me because I do think my property values will drop and I don't want certain people in my neighborhood? That's, I mean, we all need to evaluate our own use of that. Yeah, no, absolutely. And, and, and I think that, you know, it's important, too. I mean, I, I, say, I say these things that are critical of homeownership for sure, right? And, and I think it's important to be critical of it. Um, and, but we should do so alongside the recognition that there are lots of benefits to owning a home as right, well, right? Right, So, you know, unlike rent, where your rent may rise over years, right, your, your mortgage payment, if you have a traditional loan, right, is pretty steady over time. People feel a lot of personal freedom, right, to, to redecorate and to, to, you know, feel at home in their own homes. Um, it still is, right, in many ways, a, g- a good way for building wealth. So I don't mean to sort of discount right. or disparage some of the benefits of homeownership. I, I mean only to right, encourage us to talk about the way that uh, this may not be as good for communities as we as we often think that it is. Well, I we have I live in a community in Utah, and which doesn't have a lot of minorities, and my kids uh-huh. my kids are sad about it. They 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 want more they want more diversity. They want more. Um, but again, you're sitting, I'm sitting there with a brand new high school and a brand new junior high and a brand new middle school and it's all white. And, um, and by the way, and the, and the best diversity we get is when we get to church where our church area includes apartment buildings and there's diversity and all of a sudden Uh you feel normal. Yeah. Well, and that's, you know, the, the, the sociologist in me, right, is really committed to, to this idea. I mean, when we're around people that are different from us, right, when we interact kind of regularly in our neighborhoods, in our schools with people that are different, different than us, whether it's class diversity or racial diversity, right, we learn about them, we become empathetic. Um, and, and so I think there's a value to having that kind of unexpected encounter with people that are just different from us, right? Yeah. Um, and this is something that in segregated neighborhoods, whether they're segregated because of home ownership or segregated for right, any number of other reasons, um, right, people aren't interacting with people that are different than they are. And this is, you know, sort of presents a challenge for um, how, you know, how we live our lives, how empathetic we become, how much, how, how tolerant we are, how much we embrace diversity when that's not part of our everyday lives. Mm-hmm. And, and again, we, we don't even think about it just because it's a home. I, one of the reasons I love uh, the home ownership idea is because it almost, I feel compelled to save and invest, basically, is what I'm doing. Yeah. And I was, I was, I look at all of these um, supposed millennials that they're okay in an apartment, and then they're just using their their discretionary money to to travel and to have life experiences. Yeah. And I think, yeah. well, that's cool. But then I worry yeah. that in fifty or thirty years, are they going yeah. to have a retirement? Are they going to have a nest egg? Yeah. Yeah. Well, and, and, you know, the idea of saving and investing for homeownership. So, you know, as long as 
you and I have a you know traditional 30-year mortgage where I have to put down 5, 10, or 20%, and I have a regular monthly payment, then homeownership is a good way to save and invest, right? But but one of the you know the big challenge in the lead up to the housing crisis was that um, right our loans became so exotic where you didn't have to put down money and you just had to pay the interest so you were never paying down the principal right, right. there were all these all these loans that um, like got people into home ownership you know you, you think saving and investing through home ownership but that's not true if you're only paying down the principal if right. you have no equity in your home so and, you know there was a time one of the things that I found in, in the historical research on home ownership was. In the 1910s and 20s and 30s, people put down 50%, right? So you actually had to save money yeah. before you could buy a home, right? Whereas today, you could put down 5%, 10%, and then you save through home ownership rather than saving for it, right? True. Save yeah. and then buy a house. You, your, your home now is the vehicle through which you save. So there's a real transformation, right, in, in, in how we think about home ownership as kind of a savings and investment vehicle, right? This is where, you know, the average homeowner has... Uh, about a third, 30% of his or her wealth in in the value of their home. And for low-income, middle-income people, um, it's even higher than that. Yeah. Right? So for, for kind of middle-income Americans that are homeowners, you know, on average, about half of their wealth is in their housing, which is a really sort of remarkable, non-diversified asset to, 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 to build your wealth in. And especially when you think that um, how many people overreached, right? They overreached to get a bigger yeah. home, so they, I guess, could supposedly have a bigger dream. But and then it bit them, right? And it and and yeah. now and then they did have bankruptcies and they lost their home, and now they're upside down. Right. No, absolutely. And, and you know, the other part, the kind of last piece of the puzzle in the book is about the way the federal government subsidizes home ownership, right? And um, and one of the things that I show is that the largest uh the the mortgage interest deduction is one of the largest tax tax expenditures in the country right i can deduct the interest payments on my mortgage loans from my federal tax liability right and economists have shown for a long time that what that actually does is it encourages people to buy bigger homes right because uh-huh. they're they're investing more money in housing because it's um it's deductible in a way that other other interest payments are not and so they tend to overconsume housing right which is to say they buy larger homes because the federal government incentivizes right buying into home ownership, and so I think that's another piece that we need to take really seriously: is that the federal government uh, allows us to deduct our mortgage interest payments on our homes when we have capital gains on our homes, right? So if I sell my home and I make a profit on it, I don't have to pay taxes up to almost two hundred fifty thousand right. dollars. I can deduct all the state and local property taxes that I pay from my federal tax liability. So there, are, there are all these other ways built into the tax code that homeowners are these tremendously privileged, um, um, you know, recipients of tax windfalls on tax day. Uh, and so, you know, it's another piece of this puzzle. Why is the federal government so interested in subsidizing homeownership and what are the consequences of, of them doing that? Hmm. Especially, again, when it brought our economy to its knees. Yeah, no, absolutely. And there's been, you know, almost no frank discussion of uh, sort of rethinking homeownership policy in the U.S. I mean, even if you... Uh, you know, to hear the HUD secretary, Julian Castro, talk about it today. Homeownership still is, um, you know, high opportunity. It should be this inclusive institution. Um, and there's been, you know, of course, a lot of GSE reform and thinking about how we finance homeownership. But, but, but very little change, I think, in this kind of ideology that everybody should be or could be a homeowner. So what do we do, Brian, as we wrap this up? What, does, what yeah. should the average homeowner, dad with uh, four kids at home, what should yeah. I be thinking about? To make to make sure I'm not 
letting it kill me, but I'm not also just, I'm not segregating. I'm not keeping people out. I'm, what should I do? Yeah, well, you know, I think that there are, there are sort of two levels that I think about this question on. So what can I do as a homeowner, right? And, and I think it's, you know, to be reflective and to be aware of the way that I'm becoming involved in my communities, yeah. um, to, to think about, um, you know, when my actions are uh, geared at, you know, reinforcing patterns of segregation or economic inequality, and, you know, to sort of step back. I mean, one of the things that, um, that I'm interested in as a social scientist is that a lot of the things that we think lower our property values actually don't. So there's been quite a bit of work on, you know, when subsidized housing comes in, when homeless shelters come in, there's very little negative effects um, in, in real terms. So, I mean, I think that's one thing that we can do at the individual level. Um, I think we can also back up and, and sort of think more broadly about the policies here. So why is it um, that the federal government still does encourage homeownership so much? And one of the things that I argue is that instead of encouraging ownership, we should be encouraging stability, right? We could have tax credits that are associated with stability. And the federal government could be rethinking the way we, you know, encourage people to live and buy homes and to, to value renting, even long-term renting as a sort of equal option, to think about ways that renters could also build assets, to think about other kinds of home ownership, right, whether it's um, um, sort of shared equity or community land trust or something else that sort of takes it outside of this model of individual home ownership. Yeah, that's, um, I mean, it really is. And it, it, I think the reason too, Brian, is it's so complicated that most of That's us right. just barely right. were lucky to get our mortgage, and um, yeah, absolutely. And so, I, so a lot of us are just like, "I'll, I'll just let Hillary or Donald take care." And Donald right, right. knows real estate, Brian. <laughs> so yeah, no, right? Well, he knows how to make money in real estate. That's for sure. That's for sure, doesn't yeah. he? Well, yeah. we appreciate. It. I think it's a, I think it's an interesting discussion that uh, we need. Great. We need to have these open dialogues and make sure that we are inclusive, not just not just talking it, but we need to see it. We need to see more um, open communities that are inclusive. Appreciate it. Yeah. Brian, thank you so much. Keep up the great work there at Georgetown. Again, Brian J. McCabe, uh, associate professor at Georgetown University, also the author of No Place Like Home, Wealth, Community, and the Politics of Homeownership. Wanting to open up your minds, folks, right? All of us, we think about it. You, me, we need to figure out... um, We have all of these things that we just keep doing, and I'm not sure we've even thought it through. You don't always need a house. You might need an apartment. How about a condo? How about a houseboat? There's a lot of different ways to create a home, and uh, many times it's the house that's the actual entity itself that might be the least important. It might be more the feeling that's inside the home. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, continue this first hour of the Matt Townsend Show, helping you find the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. You know, home ownership. It's got a lot of perks. Um, this weekend, I realized it's also got a downside. You got to do a lot of work. Every weekend. You Every feel weekend. like maybe I'm on top of this. I get to put my feet up and yeah. no. No. And if you don't do work, then your neighbors start complaining. And then the city shows up. And then all of a sudden you're like, come on. Yeah. I was just doing this for an investment. So one, that's one problem because once you get a home, you got to take care of it. You got to fill it up with stuff, right? Um, and then when you're done filling it up, you got to go get a, a 
a rental unit and then fill that rental unit up with stuff. <laughs> We're thinking about that right now. Consumerism, all that. But here's the other dilemma. You have to protect it yeah. because once you've got it, now that's where you need home alarms. And because then, you know, as we do so many times, then the the dark side could come and start trying to steal all of your stuff. Right. And then you got to have your son. I think he was 11. <laughs> Tell the story, Terry. 11, was so it, an 11? 11-year-old boy in Alabama says he opened fire with a gun and, a, and wounded a man suspected of breaking into his home. Wow. Chris Gaithier tells uh, WVTM-TV he was home alone in Talladega on Wednesday when he last week when he heard a noise and realized someone else was inside. The boy says he grabbed a 9mm handgun and an armed male intruder threatened to kill him. Gaithier says he followed the man outside and started shooting as the <laughs> intruder fled uh, with a clothes hamper full of random things he had grabbed in the... Uh, in the house, and he says, Gaithier said that he wounded the man in the leg with his 12th and final shot. So he, he just emptied. started just emptying the clip. Oh, my So here's, the, here's the sound clip from the news report. I shot through a hamper that he was carrying, and it, went, it was a full metal jacket bullet. I went straight to the bag and hit him in his leg, and he started crying like a little baby. <laughs> this is crazy. This is a, a, an 11-year-old kid with a gun. Yeah, he's standing there and he goes, yeah. I shot him. It was a full metal jacket bullet. He started crying like a little baby. <laughs> that is, uh, it should be like traumatic, right? This kid yeah. needs therapy. He's just like, it's great. My stepfather shot, told me how to, sh- or, you know, taught, taught me how, how to, to shoot. shoot the gun. And and he he was looking at me like I wasn't going to shoot him, but I, I, I showed him. I knew him. I was going to shoot him. <laughs> I didn't want to shoot him in mama's house because I didn't want mama to have to clean up the mess. So I waited till he left the place. <laughs> Did he really? So he, how many bullets hit the guy? One? One. He shot 12 bullets. The last one went through the hamper the guy was carrying, hit him in the leg, and he, quote, was crying like a little baby. <laughs> wow. Man, that guy has no idea what he walked into. No. See, you can't choose, right? Oh, what? This little kid's going to get me? What? Is that a little kitty gun you got there? Yeah. No, it's my daddy's nine millimeter. <laughs> Prepare to die, fella. But I wow. I mean, there is there there's the idea that he shot eleven bullets. Yeah, that basically I guess sprayed the house. Well, and I'm sure all you had to do was shoot one, and the guy was gone. Right? He was probably yeah. on the way out. Right. At that point, I mean, eleven bullets had been fired. Apparently. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe. Do we you think did... after about five or six, he's like, he can't hit me. Yeah. You are the worst <laughs> shot ever. Do you think the guy was counting the bullets? I don't think there's so. There's one. There's two. There's three. <laughs> There's he doesn't know how big the the cartridge is. But it's funny as they're interviewing the kid, he's just standing there all proud. I yeah. shot him. He was crying like a baby. Now there are laws to how you can use your weapon, right, yes. on your property. I'm assuming the father didn't teach the son all of those rules. No, but most states have the if someone is in your home, yeah, you can protect yourself. You can protect yourself. He's lucky he didn't have like a. Semi-automatic. In like, Texas, though, those laws, at least when I was there before, uh, they extend to all land that you own. So if they're on your land. Yeah, so if someone comes to your door man, and you don't want them there. See, that's why you always want to like rob a house in the suburbs, not out like on the ranch. Yeah. Because the ranch, you got 500 acres to run. Yeah, there's a different world out <laughs> that there. That is a long run <laughs> when you're trying to get away from a kid with a gun. Holy cow. See, home ownership, folks. It brings a lot of blessings. Plus, your kids will grow up. They'll learn responsibility. There you go. They'll learn how to clean. And uh, 
reload their nine millimeter. Interesting. Great. Well, what do you do? What do you do? Well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, uh, we've got a whole new show, a whole other hour of more ideas, more insight for you. In fact, we're going to be talking to a medical doctor who will be talking about proof of heaven. Scientific proof of heaven. It's an interesting, uh, it's an interesting discussion. Stick with us, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world and in a few minutes in heaven as well. We'll be right back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Top of the morning to you. Hour number two of the show. And man, have we got an interesting discussion coming up next. Uh, do you believe in life after death? Or do you just think it's a bunch of gobbledygook that those people that need religion think of? Well, our next guest used to believe that it was uh, just a, just you know, it was a chemical thing that happens in your brain um, after a traumatic event. But, boy, has his story changed. Ever since he himself went through uh, a near-death experience, and uh, it changed him. And so he wrote a book, and we'll be talking about it, Proof of Heaven, A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife by Dr. Uh, Eben Alexander. He is a, a, a renowned academic neurosurgeon, had a near-death experience, came back from it, and it changed his entire story about uh, life and death. So we'll be getting to that in just a few moments. Um but uh, we also, before that, we've, we've got to talk a little political, uh, a little in the political arena of life, which also could feel like a near-death experience for many. At, at, at times, Many. Yes. I mean, in fact, some are even saying Theodore Cruz may be near-death in the political world. Could be. We, we talked before, several weeks ago, that Ted Cruz, there, there was a poll in Florida that found that, is that in this article? I forgot the actual number. But there was a significant amount of people who felt that Ted Cruz may be the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> really? And that's been something apparently that's been out there for quite a while, Why? several D- years. Just because of his his description? Uh, he sort of looks like a artist's sketch of an of, eyewitness of who the Zodiac Killer was. Hmm. Are his whereabouts known? No. So, yesterday, wow, Ted, Ted Cruz's wife, Heidi, addressed these issues. Oh, good. She's trying to clear it up so that she can get the Indiana vote. She told the press on Monday that her husband is not the Zodiac Killer <laughs> and that to list the bizarre uh, sentences uh, produced by a, the 2016 presidential primary race right along Donald Trump is close to... What is this? And that to list the uh, the list of bizarre sentences produced by uh, Donald Trump was close to clinching the Republican nomination. So she says it's crazy, just like saying Donald Trump's okay. going to clinch. That's yeah. what she's trying to say. Yeah. On Monday, Yahoo News asked uh, Heidi Cruz to comment on jokes that her husband is the infamous 
unapprehended Bay Area killer known as the Zodiac Killer. <laughs> she goes, well, I've been married to him for 15 years, and I know pretty well who he is, so it doesn't bother me at all. There's a lot of garbage out there, Cruz said at an Indiana campaign stop. Well, it's amazing how a lot of people are swayed by it, she continued. Part of it is the news media, and they just won't let up. The Ted, uh, the Ted Cruz is a Zodiac Killer meme has been around for years, but it gained <laughs> renewed relevance this uh, week. After comedian Larry Wilmore referenced the joke of the White House Correspondents' Dinner, yeah, uh, this is the fr- and it says uh, it goes on to say this is the first time a member of the Cruz family has addressed the question of whether he is well, or is not the Zodiac Killer. It, it seems like now I'm not a press agent, right? But I do press regularly. Okay, it seems like you wouldn't want to address it, or you seem to make it real. But someone asked you the question. Do you just ignore it, and move on, or yeah? Okay. I would just say, that's crazy. I'm not even going to talk about that. A lot of times people get criticized for answering questions. Right. And I'd rather have people answer questions than just say no comment or, you know, because then it seems like you're ducking it or hiding from it and just address it and move on. She says, no, he's not. Move on. All I wanted to do is run for president. And <laughs> now I'm being indicted. <laughs> Somehow I'm the Zodiac Killer. Zodiac Killer. That's not me. Yeah. So there that's you go. sad. Sad. I mean, can you not even run for president? Um, we got to get to the headlines and uh, go visit the news with Jameson. Jameson's going to walk us through everything that's going on, uh, you know, in the United States and uh, help us understand what we need to know. Jameson. Thanks, Matt. The Indiana primaries are today for both the Democrat and Republican parties. Current polls of Hillary Clinton leading with 50% compared to rival Bernie Sanders' 43%. On the Republican side, Donald Trump is leading with 42% compared to 32% for Ted Cruz and 15% for John Kasich. The Supreme Court refused to hear a case by business groups hoping to challenge Seattle's new $15 an hour minimum wage. The law requires businesses with more than 500 employees nationwide to raise their minimum wage to $15 by 2018. Smaller companies have until 2021 to do so. The lawsuit argued that local franchises of larger larger companies should be treated as local businesses and should therefore have until 2021 to comply with the new wage. The Broadway musical Hamilton has been nominated for a record-breaking 16 Tony Awards. The 16 nominations are the most in Broadway history, breaking the previous record of 15 nominations. The show is a hip-hop-infused telling of The Founding Father Without a Father. The show's creator, Lin-Manuel Miranda, has already received the Pulitzer Prize and a MacArthur Foundation Genius Grant for her work on the musical. First Lady Michelle Obama called the show the best piece of art in any form that I have ever seen in my life. And a former FBI agent admitted to stealing seized money. Scott Bowman admitted that he had stolen over $136,000 seized during drug enforcement operations. Bowman went on a three-week spending spree with the money, purchasing a car, plastic surgery for his wife, and going to a Las Vegas boxing match. His arrest forced prosecutors to drop charges against more than a dozen defendants of gang-related crime that had previously been investigated by Bowman. And those are the updates for today. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Jameson. Appreciate it. Now, we got to talk about, uh, even though uh, we're not big soccer fans or football fans, Leicester takes the Premier League Cup. They which did. they are the, they had like 5,000 to 1 odds. That's how the season started. 5,000 to 1 odds they could and win. And now they, and they take it. That is cool. They were set for uh, underdogs. Re- relegation last season, which means if you finish at the end, if you're the last team, they drop you to a lower level of competition. Oh, wow. So it's like you're in the NBA, 
you're you finish with the worst record they kick you down to the developmental league and then grab with the best team from the developmental league and bring them up to the top league they need to do that in the nba that would actually but spice the, it up the owners wouldn't wouldn't do that cuz here you lose so you can get the top draft pick right 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 Right, and so they do that where your whole franchise will drop to a lower league to incentivize yeah. you to win. Well, it seems like it's not fair that by losing you get the best draft pick. Yeah, that seems. Which is why the NBA put in a lottery system, mm-hmm. and so it's not foolproof that you'll you get the top pick, and that you know. But I don't know. They ended up then beating out Manchester United. They beat out Chelsea. They beat out all of these other teams. Liverpool, yeah. That is huge. It did, cool. it did come down to the last day. It always does. They had to wait for other teams to win, lose, and figure that out to see if they won. But the videos, you can find them online and people just going nuts because, as it uh, says here, they're the champion of England for the first time in the team's 132-year history. That is awesome. Yeah. And that is so big there. Like, people die for that. Yes. You know, you don't see a lot of people dying for an NFL team. Well, it, sometimes Except the NFL players, of course, if the the Raiders and the Chargers get together. Sometimes there's uh, you know an occasional stabbing or something. There is, but we've never like had a brawl that killed a hundred people. Good point. <laughs> <laughs> Which would be the funny thing is it's you know it's it's different. People aren't throwing Molotov cocktails at NFL games. No, though and you can you heavens. can hop on YouTube and watch videos of soccer games across Europe where that tends to happen. It's <laughs> true. <laughs> It's totally true. Or, or in what some places, it was in South America, I think, they, they have a moat in yeah. between the crowd and the field. Oh, yeah. And fencing, so the crowd can't jump onto oh, the field. Oh, interesting, because, you know, they get always the get players. pressed against that fence, too. Yeah. So now, instead of getting pressed into a fence, you just drown. And there's like there's moats. Some people, some uh, teams put up walls as barriers to keep people from getting on the field. It's just, I don't know. Interesting. Um, crazy... Uh, you know, I guess news. I don't know if it's crazy, but um, the uh, a U.S. service member killed in Iraq. Hmm. That's a big deal too. Like we th- I, didn't we all think Iraq was kind of to bed, and then all the uprisings well, lately. To bed in the sense of active combat operations. Mm-hmm. We still have people there on advisory status. He, this person so was an advisor to Peshmerga first forces. Yeah, and. Which means he's out there in the middle of it. Right. It's not like he's sitting back in a, a right. safe zone or something. And an advisor would probably be, you know, somebody with special skills, special operational skills, a.k.a. special ops. He's on the front lines calling in targets to flying, you know, Oh, that's scary because so. I know people that do that. Yeah. It's still not safe, so... I guess even though... So even though it's coded as advisory, they're still in combat. Right. And then many would argue... It's like the whole boots on the ground thing, and we keep putting more troops in. Right. There's now 250. I I heard a whole press conference at the Defense Department on how that doesn't qualify as boots on the ground. That doesn't? Mike, so what are they wearing? Are they wearing sandals? Are they wearing high heels? What are these guys wearing? Are they wearing boots? Are they on the ground? We have troops in these areas that we're saying we don't have active combat operations and does it matter what we call it people americans are dying in iraq that's you know and then the the spokesperson from the defense department claimed that they have never used the term boots on the ground but you go to youtube watch compilations of president obama talking about boots on the ground and it's mixed with some rap song of the day (laughs) there you go 
Really? <laughs> it's auto-tuned. It's is that how good. that works now? Yeah, that's you how it works. You just need a good rap song. Yeah. Um, what else is in the news? What else are, is going on? I, I sit and I look, and it, it's just a lot of pretty typical stuff. Um, the, this one I found interesting. We've talked about this a couple times. Brazil. Yeah. They're, yeah they have shut down used to a, uh, an app called WhatsApp. What's that? Which is owned by Facebook. Yeah. Why? It's a texting messaging app. Right. Right. And now the idea is uh, most people have uh, a messaging texting functionality on their phone, but that comes with their data plan. Well, WhatsApp is an app where it's free, and so there's no charges. You're you're on the WhatsApp system, and you send free text to anyone you want. Yeah. In Brazil, you apparently you pay per text. Oh boy! Whereas here in the United States, we buy a plan. You t- most of them are unlimited now. Yeah, because it's it's really doesn't cost the the phone carrier anything to have texting, and uh, so the WhatsApp app says a judge in Brazil has ordered mobile phone providers to block the widely popular, widely used WhatsApp messaging application for seventy two hours. A decision apparently aimed at forcing the service to turn over user data. Oh boy. Roughly half of Brazil's 200 million people use WhatsApp, which is owned by Facebook. The judge, who works in the small northeastern state of Sangripe, did not give a reason for the order, which took effect across the country Monday, but is thought to be related to a drug trafficking investigation. In March, the same judge ordered a brief arrest of Facebook's vice president for Latin America for the company's refusal to turn over data on WhatsApp customers suspected in the drug case. Hmm. So here we go. Now, since there's one, there, 200 million people in Brazil use this app, one, there's, you know, huge protest because now they can't, you know, use their phone like they want to. And people start moving to other apps because yeah. there's other free options out there. And, and most of them end up being encrypted in some way. And so they, Brazil really hasn't solved the problem because they can't get the data because it's encrypted. See, what they're trying to do, though, is shut down what's really going on and distract everybody from what's really going on in Brazil. Yeah. The Olympics are headed to Brazil, and their president may not be the president when they get there. There's an impeachment going on. It's crazy. That's a big deal. There's been unrest since they had the World Cup there before because yeah. they spent so much money on building infrastructure for the World Cup and they're building infrastructure for the Olympics, but people are out of jobs, people are hungry, the, 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 you know, they can't pay for the, the government can't pay for services, and so it's a really volatile situation. And uh, uh, the reports I've read is the Olympic venues that are there, the ones that will be featured prominently on TV are ready to go. They're all ready to go. If you're not going to be featured prominently on TV, eh, maybe about 50, 60%. Halfway under construction. And if you have any rowing events, you have to watch out for the floating couches. Right. Unless couches, they actually bodies. cleaned up that river, which may or may they not They could happened. easily clean it up. They probably don't want to clean it up now. They'll want to clean it up later. Right. Like right before people come up. Isn't that crazy? And then on top of that, you have the, the Zika concerns. Yeah. And it's just it's kind of a That's a why they don't want there. this app. Yeah. Because, you know. Well, they want, a, they want the drug... Uh, investigation apparently they want that information right. and uh, facebook or whatsapp is saying no no it's see, encrypted it's private we are going to see hundreds of these debates between technology companies and governments trying to get more information crazy crazy stuff folks um anyway we will uh we gotta we gotta move on to an interesting um topic do you believe in heaven well, our next guest thought it was crazy. He was a, a, a world-renowned um, neurosurgeon. And he's, uh, 
you know, he thought it was just crazy. All that is is just chemistry, you know. When And when you're stressed out, your body will make certain chemicals, and that's all you think heaven is. And Well, he's changed his tune, folks, after having his own kind of uh, brush with heaven in a near-death experience. And he's here today as a neurosurgeon to talk about his journey into the afterlife. Interesting topic, eh? Proof of Heaven is the name of the book. We'll come back with its author, Dr. Eben Alexander III. Stick with us. This is The Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to The Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe in life after death? Think about it. Many do, right? And uh, different religions paint different pictures of what it may look like, from heavenly angels to simply an abode of peace. Other religions don't believe in a heaven that exists as a physical space. But uh, what would it look like to you? Our guest today, Dr. Evan Alexander III, a renowned academic neurosurgeon who had a near-death experience and came back with a whole new perspective. He joins us now live from Virginia to talk about his experience. Dr. Evan Alexander, welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Matt, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. You've been honored to have you. What an interesting topic because as a neuroscience and or a neurosurgeon and um, and a professional, you, you had your own view of of uh, heaven and life after death, and you didn't believe it before well, you had your own experience. The, uh, conventional party line, you know. The I went to med school, uh, finished 1980, and then all through the 80s and 90s and early 2000s, my uh, career uh, at Harvard Medical School teaching uh, neurosurgery. I thought I had some idea of how brain, mind, and consciousness worked, but it was definitely uh, trapped in in kind of the old paradigm of the. Uh, 20th and early 21st century of, you know, the physical being all that exists and consciousness being some epiphenomenon of the workings of the physical brain. And my coma journey showed me very clearly that that was completely backwards. And the good news is that much of the scientific community is waking up to this now all over the question of consciousness, and it's going to revolutionize our worldview. Wow. And t- talk to us. Talk to us about what what led you. What what happened to you that made you um, that made you change your tune? Well, I think uh, the real gift in all this was my diagnosis. Uh, no other means of going into coma could have allowed me to come away with the conclusions that I could. And the reason is that a severe case of gram-negative bacterial meningitis like I had, that's the very worst kind of bacterial meningitis you can have. Mm. Um, And my doctors knew full well that my neocortex, the human part of the brain, the outer surface, was devastated, even when I was first brought into the emergency room on day one. And I spent seven days in coma, uh, and doctors who deal with such illness will realize you never have a patient who spends... Uh, seven days in coma from that, and then has a full recovery, especially given the details of how uh, how ill I was from this meningitis. Um, and a deep mystery, along with you don't ever come back from that kind of thing, 
is uh, you should have no experience within it because our our modern neuroscientific views of the neocortex and its role in the brain of creating consciousness mean that uh, you know my kind of coma with such a complete destruction of the neocortex should not allow any kind of hallucination, dream effect, of uh, huh. dream state, drug effect, anything like that. And yet I had a very rich experience that was far beyond what my brain can muster even now. Uh, and this is all pointing out that consciousness is not created by the brain at all, that there's much more to the universe than just the physical. Wow. And it's a revolution in the awakening of of our scientific community to the realities of non-local consciousness and that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. Powerful. And the mere fact, too, that you remember. I mean, it's, I mean, it seems like just coming out of such a thing would be you wouldn't be able to remember it either. But apparently you remember it, you experienced it, you weren't supposed to based on our, our traditional history of, of understanding, and, and now you can blow up some paradigms. Well, you know, for a long time, uh, memory has been a deep, deep question in the neuroscientific world. And even though I came along with the rest of uh, conventional neuroscience, thinking that somehow memories must be stored in the physical brain, because I thought the physical brain created consciousness. But now I realize that memories are not stored in the brain in that sense at all. And in fact, one of the, the greatest neurosurgeons of the 20th century, who absolutely has the best evidence uh, to talk about memory and the brain and, and all of that, is Wilder Penfield. He wrote a beautiful book uh, in, the, in 1975 called The Mystery of the Mind. He was a, a renowned Canadian neurosurgeon, worked in Montreal mainly with epileptic patients, and he had electrically stimulated the brain in these patients doing operations to resect uh, the cause of their seizures, the parts of the brain that were the problem, for decades. And he wrote this book in 1975 and made it very clear that mind and consciousness are not created by the brain. He made it very clear that free will is not something that can be found in the brain at all. And uh, yet his book, The Mystery of the Mind, which is a deep scientific study of the fundamental nature of consciousness, uh, basically fell on deaf ears. You know, mm. the world was not ready in 1975 to hear that. But the world is ready now. And this is the awakening that is coming to the scientific community and the world at large that will revolutionize our thinking and serve to synthesize science and spirituality in a much more profound sense. Was it? Were you worried um, to come out of the closet, so to speak, and, and talk about your findings, talk about what you learned? Or did you feel this imperative in your heart because of the spiritual nature of what you'd been through? Well, it's important to point out that um, my illness was devastating. When I first woke up in the ICU on day seven of my coma, a few hours after my doctors had recommended just stopping the antibiotics because they estimated I was down to 2% chance of survival with oh, wow. no chance of recovery, when I did start waking up, my brain was absolutely wrecked. I did not recognize my mother, my sisters, my uh, son standing at the bedside. I had no idea who these beings were. All of my memories of Evan Alexander's life before coma, including all language, religious concepts, hmm. uh, every bit of that had been deleted in the middle of the experience, uh, which allowed for a very profound and robust experience, which, of course, is what I describe in the book Proof of Heaven and the sequel, The Map of Heaven. Yeah. But uh, when I first came back, 
it was so shocking to me and so ultra real, as I told my older son who was majoring in neuroscience at the time, I said it was way too real to be real, <laughs> which was the best way I could express it. And, and my doctors kept telling me that my brain was far too damaged to have experienced anything. So my default uh, explanation early on was it had to be some massive hallucination that completely defied any kind of uh, conventional neuroscientific thinking, but I still thought it had to be based in my brain. I was defaulting to my pre-coma thinking, but as time went on, as I went and spoke with my doctors, reviewed my case, went through all the medical records, all the scans, and talked it over with them and with interested neurosurgical colleagues, what we ended up discovering was it seemed way too real to be real because it absolutely was. <laughs> we ruled out that it could have been any kind of hallucination or trick of the dying brain because my brain was too incapacitated in the form of destruction of the neocortex, which was global in my case, uh, to have allowed any such experiences to happen. So to this day, my doctors will tell you they have no explanation whatsoever for my recovery. Uh, you know, I was 2% chance of survival, so that's not unheard of, 2%, but they thought it was absolutely unheard of that I would have any meaningful recovery and return to consciousness. And yet within three months, everything had come back and was actually more complete than it had been before my coma in terms of memories and, and uh, my general kind of overall mental and conscious state was even enhanced beyond what it had been before my coma. Hmm. That part was extremely difficult to explain, and it's why I'm still on a vertical part of the learning curve trying to understand all of this. Wow. And, and yet you've, you've also been become, um, I guess, adept at being able to explain what we don't know, what we don't understand, and do it, doing it academically, but also being able to connect it to that, that spiritual peace that, uh, that people need. Talk to us about heaven. What did well, you learn? Uh, you know, we, you don't have to just go by my story. That's the really good news here, is proof of heaven is just one story of millions uh, of modern stories. There are tens of thousands of reports out there on the Internet. And, of course, I get the benefit by talking several times a week about this around the world. I have uh, many people come up to me. I'd say roughly 10 to 15 percent of my audiences at the end of my talks will come up and say, I never told anybody this before, mm. but... Yeah. And they will share with me a story that is absolutely world-changing when you realize how common these stories are and the similarities between them. Yeah. And these are often people who may not have ever read anything about near-death experiences. And the other category that is so shocking are what are called shared-death experiences. And I started giving talks on my experience about two and a half years before Proof of Heaven came out, back in 2010, and I started having many people come up to me afterwards and share not only a near-death experience they may have had, or a deathbed visitation or deathbed vision, uh, you know, something that was shared with them by a departing soul of a departing loved one, but also the shared death experiences, where in fact um, the... Uh, soul of a loved one at the bedside, but it can be, they could be 3,000 miles away, but more commonly, they're at the bedside of someone who is dying, um, and they, the bystander soul gets sucked along on the journey. Huh. And the typical way they tell this to me is that they're standing there at the bedside of their, say, for example, their mother dying, uh, and all of a sudden, they see the walls and floor and ceiling 
blend into this geometry of infinity, and these light beings come in, they see the light body soul rise up out of the uh, body of their departing, of the de- dying loved one, and then the soul of the bystander also goes along in the journey, even to the point of seeing a full-blown life review. Hmm. And then they come back to this world. And like I said, this kind of thing can happen even if you're 3,000 miles away from your dying mother. Uh, her soul can come through and give you this blissful, incredibly concrete message about the reality of your interconnection as souls and then move on. And so when you start hearing shared death experiences like that in people who are physiologically totally normal, so all of those nonsensical, simplistic pseudo-explanations from the world of medicine and science trying to say, well, it's just oxygen tension in the brain as you die, or the buildup of carbon dioxide in the blood, and other kinds of uh, similarly nonsensical tripe, what you realize is that this is a far more profound mystery about the nature of who we are and the commonality of these experiences and the fact that they're there by the millions is what drives this world to come to a deeper explanation. When you realize they are not simplistically dismissed as hallucinations or drug effects, but they're far more profound indicators of the nature of our eternal spiritual being and that the only thing that matters is our interrelationships with others, because I often say this is really the evolution of all of humanity, which is occurring through each and every one of us, but is a much bigger story about getting into the depths of uh, our nature for being and purpose in our lives and what this whole existence is all about. And uh, that's what this world needs to wake up to now and is waking up to now, as is the entire scientific community around the question of consciousness and the relationship of brain and mind. It's uh, it's fascinating. Recently, too, we just had on Dr. Lisa Miller from Columbia, who wrote the book The Spiritual Child, and again, validating the academic research around spirituality and, and a connectedness to a higher being, a higher power, a oneness of the universe, whatever we want to call it. But um, she's able now, through twin studies and other studies, to validate the the great benefits of a connection to that higher power. And it, I, it is. It seems like it's 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 the time. It's the time that we need to start maybe um, opening up and studying this more. We're speaking with Dr. Eben Alexander um, and his book, Proof of Heaven. Also, uh, his his new book, The Map of Heaven. We'll take a break, come back, and continue this discussion. Learn more about uh, what Dr. Alexander found. Um, on the other side, proof of heaven. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. Do you believe in heaven? Have you heard friends tell their uh, near-death experiences or other experiences where they felt a connection to a soul that had just passed or, um, you know, been on a been on a journey uh, with those people as well um, post-death? Well, our our guest that we're speaking with, Dr. Um, Eben Alexander III, is the author of the book Proof of Heaven. A Neurosurgeon's Journey into the Afterlife After Suffering a Severe, uh, Fatal, Really, but Not, not for Him, um, 
diagnosis of a form of meningitis, he um, he he went there and and back and is and then blew up a lot of myths that uh, he had learned as a neurosurgeon and a renowned neurosurgeon at that. Um, again, Dr. Eben Alexander, thank you so much for being with us. It's great to be back. Teach us what uh, what else? What do we need to know? Um, what do we need to know from the other side as one that's journeyed and and felt um, and felt that ch- that change and and also come back and what do we need to know just as the average citizen? As the average citizen, the best thing to know is that we are each deeply loved and cherished and will be taken care of. We simply have to recover the memory uh, that we are eternal spiritual beings. Now, the thing is, we're not in this in isolation, because through this evolving understanding of consciousness and what it is, what we're coming to see is that we are all interconnected within consciousness. It's almost like this is one mind that is actually doing the learning and teaching and growing and evolving. And we're all parts of that one mind. And even though the way we are uh, presented you know, as individual uh, incarnations in these physical bodies, and that leads us into this uh, kind of false belief of separation, uh, in deep meditation and in centering prayer and through spontaneous epiphanies, what have you, we can come to see very clearly that we are really part of one mind. We're all in this together. This is why this love of the Creator for the creation, which so many near-death experiencers describe feeling in that realm, that uh, infinite healing power of unconditional love, uh, and of course many of us call that uh, incredible love God, that deity is uh, labeled as God, as the Creator, is the source of all that is. And I would say that that's very much the case, that the very basis of our consciousness is that God, that deity, that fundamental consciousness. And when we realize the physical brain is not creating that at all, but in fact the brain works more like a reducing valve or filter that allows that primordial consciousness in, that that infinite universal primordial consciousness pre-exists all of this universe. It stands outside of space and time as the creator of all that evolves. And that is something we are all part of. And so by going within meditation, centering prayer, what have you, or spontaneous epiphanies from a near-death experience or a deathbed visitation, a shared death experience, what have you, we are getting in touch with that of that God, that deity, that powerful source consciousness across the veil. Uh, and that's why so much of my work now, as I mentioned in the appendix of the book Map of Heaven, uh, that appendix is entitled The Answers Lie Within Us All, has everything to do with uh, sharing tools for deep conscious exploration, specifically um, that involves sacred acoustics. And for people who want to obtain these tools, there's a free download at sacredacoustics.com. And people can listen to differential sound frequencies that sacred acoustics has developed. And I've worked very closely with them in that process. And these tools, oddly enough, sound, differential frequency sound, as was discovered in the mid-1800s by a German physiologist named Dove, can do an amazing job of helping us to get in touch with that infinite awareness and to slip outside of the false sense of the here-now that is projected to us by our brain serving as a filter 
and reducing consciousness down to this tiny little trickle. Hmm. And that's why it's so important to go within. And in fact, this is all about healing uh, in, the, in the grandest sense, whether you're talking about healing of the individual from an Ill- illness, healing of uh, groups, of soul groups, healing of ethnic and national groups, we're all in the process of healing through this awakening, this synthesis of science and spirituality that's coming to this world brings great healing to the world. But just as individuals, uh, by going within, you can come to see that any kind of physical, mental, emotional healing you want to talk about must originate with spiritual healing. And only when we get that far grander sense of who we are, how we're all interconnected. The important thing here is the love and the interconnectedness and relationships. And the best way to truly love ourselves, I, I saw when I came back from my coma that one of the biggest problems in this world is we don't even love ourselves enough. We think the tough part is loving our neighbor, loving our enemy, but you really must start with loving yourself, and the best way to do that is to remember that we are infinitely powerful, eternally existent spiritual beings that are all interconnected, and in the very core of our conscious awareness is that deity, that God, that sense of love, and by manifesting that love, unconditional love of the creator for the creation, we can basically serve as a conduit for that love and use it in all of our life choices to show love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy to all of our fellow beings. And I don't think anyone would question that serving as a point of light and manifesting that kind of love is what enables each and every one of us to move much closer to that love and to Mm -hmm. that infinite awareness of self and of joy and bliss that only comes by realizing that by sharing that with the world, with all fellow beings, is the way that we most fully manifest it for ourselves. Because, in fact, the ego leads us into all kinds of tricks about this false sense of separation. But to recover that love, that love for ourselves, it's best done by loving others. Mm. And that's what enables us to really grow that love and manifest that love for all of the infinite healing power that it harbors and brings to this world. Did you have, Dr. Alexander, a religious creed before you, before you had your, uh, your, your brain, what do we call it, uh, meningitis? Or because it's interesting, you, you even you make it, it – it's very simple, isn't it? This isn't about a heaven and God choosing uh, the ones he likes more than the ones he doesn't and then sending a bunch down to hell. You're, but no, you're talk, but it's, it's pure love, isn't it? It's pure peace. It is, it is really, in fact, I came away from my journey very clearly seeing that love and light are – they are the presence in the universe. And I saw that uh, darkness and evil, you know, uh, man's inhumanity to man, all the warfare and violence, every bit of that um, – does not have a, a presence as an active positive force in that world. Uh, those darknesses and evils represent the absence of the light and love. But mm. in fact, uh, that unconditional love in its purest form has infinite power to heal. There is not a force that counters it, a force of evil that might someday overcome it. Uh, and that was a very powerful revelation to to see the the power of unconditional love to heal this world. There's nothing that goes up against it, 
because the darkness and evil is simply the absence of it. Hmm. Yeah. And and that is such a, a crucial distinction to make. But this is, it is very simple. These are ancient lessons, and yet they're the only way out for our most advanced fronts of uh, materialist science and cosmology, because as long as you're stuck in that pure materialism, thinking that, you know, subatomic particles are the only thing that exists in this universe, the more... Uh, you're really kind of stuck in an untruth because it's all fundamentally originating from consciousness. And those involved in physics only have to know the depth of the measurement problem and what it tells us. That's what drove the founding fathers of quantum uh, mechanics into mysticism. People like Werner Heisenberg, Erwin Schrodinger, uh, Louis de Broglie, Sir James Jeans, and others, because it, it showed them the findings in, in quantum mechanical experiments proved that consciousness is fundamental in the universe. And the, and the physics and cosmology community has spent the last 116 years kind of waffling over that, uh, unwilling to make the committing step, but that's why the measurement problem in quantum mechanics mm. is still completely unresolved. But the more they come to realize... That consciousness is fundamental. That consciousness is that God force, that force of love that is described empirically by all those who have been to the other side, including the tens of millions of near-death experiencers that have come up over the last 50 years because of cardiac resuscitation techniques introduced in modern medicine. That is no accident that we have this incredible army of near-death experiencers who have come back to this world to help usher the world into a whole new understanding, uh, which realizes that the material and physical side is only a tiny little subset of what really exists in the universe. And in fact, any human being uh, can only know and has only known throughout all of history only the inside of their own consciousness. So to deny the existence of consciousness is really to deny the existence of all reality. The thing is, the mind and brain are so incredibly powerfully clever at the trick of convincing us that what we witness out in the world is all that world out there is actually out there. Because the truth is, no one has ever experienced anything other than an internal model, a representation of what we assume to be the outside world. But that's why the deep mystery of quantum mechanics is so profound, because the more and more you go into the experiments of quantum mechanics into recent years, the more refined experiments, the more you realize that that old uh, dream of the clockwork universe ticking away that 400 years of the scientific revolution has been searching for uh, the quantum mechanical experiments of the most recent variety show us that there is no such objective external physical reality, hmm. that all of it depends on mind and consciousness for serving as kind of the interpreter or the stage on which all of that is assembled. But there is nothing but consciousness. It's the only thing we've ever experienced. And yet our modern science, conventional science, tries to dismiss that and say, no, no, no. Uh, in fact, it's just the workings of the subatomic particles, atoms, molecules in the brain, giving you the illusion of consciousness, illusion of free will. And in fact, that is the viewpoint that has it completely backwards. Huh. My coma journey showed me very clearly. Yeah. Um, we only have about a minute or so left. Talk to us about, um, uh, I mean, th this change. We, it seems like we are only a paradigm shift away from getting to that peace, that unconditional love, 
that you're talking about. We only need to see it just a little bit differently, and and it can immediately change us. What is something we can do today to create that shift of toward love and light today? Well, to go within. Uh, you know, silence that little voice. Remember, the voice in your head is not your consciousness. It's a, it's a parlor trick. The linguistic brain, as it's tied to ego uh, and, and false sense of self, so going within is absolutely essential, going into consciousness. This, again, is why I suggest the tools of sacred acoustics. If people will go download that or any form of meditation or deep-centering prayer that you may have in place. But for those who say, well, my mind is too busy to meditate, I can't do it, well, go to sacred acoustics, and you will definitely find a way to absolutely go within hmm. and come to realize that that is the means by which we go out into the universe and come into much greater wisdoms, just as all the seers and seekers and prophets and mystics have done over thousands of years. Going within is absolutely the key to coming to know all the information of this universe. Make it a regular practice, and everything in your life will improve. Oh, beautiful. I, you can, I mean, you can just, how could it not? Going to more love, going to more centeredness and this and, a, and an unconditional love toward others. How could you beat it? Dr. Eben Alexander, we appreciate you so much. Thank you for your journey with us and, uh, and keep teaching. Well, Matt, thank you so much for having me and uh, God bless you and, you and all of your listeners and all here. Thank, thank you. Thank you. Again, Dr. Eben Alexander, if you go to his website, E-B-E-N, Alexander.com, EbenAlexander.com, um, Proof of Heaven and um, Map of Heaven, two wonderful uh, resources for you to, to go in, go inside. And, you know, you f- whatever you're thinking, you feel, you feel something different when you talk about that this is about love and unconditional love. And um, there is a difference between what you're thinking you are and what you feel in your most peaceful at, at peace moments, um, holding your baby, uh, being by somebody that's passing. There's a whole different mindset, your consciousness. There's a whole different level for you there. And uh, we all need to be seeking after it one way or another if you really, truly want to have some peace. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show, helping you see the good in the world. We'll be right back. Welcome back, friends, to the Matt Townsend Show. So when you are sitting there and you think, I'm such a loser, such a loser, what part of you is, is saying that, right? Is that your brain? Is that your mind? Is that your consciousness? Which Dr. Alexander kept bringing up, I call it spirit. What or is it your spirit? What what which? What do you call it? I personally don't believe that your spirit, that consciousness of who you are, that connection to that higher power in the world. I don't believe that that is here to tell you you're fat. Well, no, but my spirit wants me to get healthy. Sure, so your spirit would prompt health. It wouldn't create a negative sense of self like you're fat. That's, I believe, your mind's job. Your mind is this idea of who you think you are because of what you've experienced through this life. Your mind is not who you are either. 
you're not just a boy or a girl. You're not just smart or mm, not so smart, but super creative. Whatever your parents told you um, and everyone else reflected on you as you're growing up, to me, that becomes part of your mind. And the battle becomes this battle between your mind that's trying to control your body or your spirit that's trying to control your body. Now, these are just my views, right? But I found a lot of peace knowing that I can start to recognize the difference. So when I, I sit there and I get mad at somebody and I'm getting more and more mad and I think and I have to break that person down into little parts like you're a jerk and you're petty and you don't even have a job and blinkity blink. The minute I'm doing that, I'm not in my spirit or as Dr. Alexander would call it, you're not in your consciousness. You are you're in your mind and your mind feels a need to battle everyone around you because there's only so many resources here. Right. And your job, you need as many of them as you can to provide safety for your body. You've got to be more popular than everyone else and prettier and more powerful. And if you don't, oh, what are you? You're just a loser. That's all your mind. So when I work with my clients every day, uh, if I can't get them to start to distinguish between their mind and their spirit or their mind and their consciousness, as soon as they can see the difference between the two, holy cow, it changes everything. That is what I think he's referring to when he calls it going in, go inside, going in you. And I always say, just look to God. If your God came in, and truly, if, if you believe in a God and, and that God came and sat down right next to you, tell me what you'd complain about. Well, but Donald Trump, blankety, blank, blank, blank. And Ted Cruz, holy cow. Hillary, so is Hillary guilty or not? You wouldn't go to there on any of that. None of that would matter to you. What would matter? Ah, your family, your friends, your connection, who you need to serve, how you need to be better to serve with your God, hand in hand, to make things better. That's probably where we'd go. Anyway, it's just my view. Little coach's corner for you. Body, mind, and spirit. Try to distinguish between your spirit and your body and your mind. We'll take a break, folks. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. A whole new hour. We're talking parenting issues next hour. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be back. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Your guide on the side. Follow Dr. Matt on Twitter at Dr. Matt Show. Call the show at 1-855-CHAT-BYU. This is the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt Townsend. Now on BYU Radio. BYU Radio. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to the Matt Townsend Show. Dr. Matt here, your life coach, your guide on the side. Welcome back to the show. Hour number three, folks. You're making it through the day one hour at a time. And we're here to help you uh, figure out your life, find out what uh, what you need to be doing. we got a great uh, show for you today as well. Uh, do you have kids? And uh, are you trying to make your kids amazing superstars? Because behind every incredible child, there is a pushy parent. And uh, sometimes you gotta you got to push a little bit, right? You got to teach your kids... The power of uh, of themselves, what they can accomplish in their lives, but you also have to just maybe get them to do their homework, do things that the the children do not want to do. Last night, not to brag, 
I had to go school my boys in a little hoop, a little basketball. Hmm. They keep, they're really big into crossover dribbles. Yes, that's popular nowadays. It's hugely popular. Do they like to shoot threes? Uh, no. Long distance shots? They don't, but they would. But we were playing, we lowered the hoop and oh. we're playing with a little ball. So they really want to get in and, and make some moves. But they also think that if they cross over fast enough that I'm going to blow a hip. Or fall down. or Yeah, but or, I don't. Hmm. Because I'm agile. I am... I'm like the wind. Isn't it more more that you're so slow you don't really notice it even happens? So by the time they've done their crossover and they've yeah. come back to the same spot, you haven't moved yet, so it's they a really haven't. Like that. Okay, it's a crossover, but then they, you know, by the time my body realizes, oh, we're going the other way, they've already crossed back. They come back and then they're in the same spot, yeah. and you're blocking their way. Still, they call me. They call me the wind because I move like the wind. What does that mean? They just say every time I'm moving, they hear a lot of wind passing through my body. Oh, so wheezing and yeah. huffing and puffing. Okay. I didn't know that's what they meant. I thought it was more like, man, Dad, you fly. Yeah, it sounded like a positive thing. No, and I didn't think that would be no, accurate. It's so. not. Right. But I do move like the wind. Agile. I move like a butterfly. But I sting like a bee. No, that was that was Ali. It was yeah. different. That's a good line. He actually had, um, you know, mobility and... Skills. Well, we all did. Uh, he had quite a bit more than I think the normal you. What, what do you mean by that? The what? normal me. What do you mean by that? That <laughs> sounded weird. It sounded like you misspoke there. I, I think I I went to try to be kind of veiled and then just straight for the insult. Yeah. Tried weird. to hold back and then ha- just ah, forget it. We're just talking about you. So it's fine. Huh. Hey, it's paranormal day. Yeah. It's the day for all those who believe in paranormal activity. The truth is out there. And you should share your experiences all around the world. Okay, great. Mm. I told you I'm, I'm re-watching all these episodes of X-Files, right? Yeah, now why are you doing that? Because I love the show. But you know they're not true. No, it's a, it's, a, it's a TV program, but they're based on events. No, they're not. Sometimes. Never. True. Not. Sometimes Mm-mm. people have had similar stories about experiences well, and they people be- that are inebriated. You don't know. No, I do. I think that's very dismissive and, and slightly insulting Hil- to Hillary, those people who Hillary believe. Clinton says she's going to release all of the paranormal UFO type of information. Right. Right. It's Everybody the government. Says that. Government. To go get the paranormal vote. Mm. Everyone's after the paranormal vote. But little do they realize that Ted Cruz has already cornered that market. (laughs) It's World Press Freedom Day as well. The United Nations General Assembly declared May 3rd to be World Press Freedom Day or just World Press Day to raise awareness of the importance of the freedom of press. So let's celebrate our press today and your freedom of press. Don't know how you do that. We could go to the news. Let's go to the news with Jameson and find out what Jameson has got going for us as we are celebrating World Press Freedom Day. Jameson? Thanks, Matt. A Tennessee Guns on Campus law is moving forward as Governor Bill Haslam announced that the bill would become law but without a signature. The bill allows full-time faculty and staff, as well as other employees, to carry weapons on public college and university campuses. The bill requires a handgun carry permit, as well as the stipulation that those who wish to carry notify local law enforcement. 
President Obama is taking a Supreme Court nomination battle to local television as the president just did six local news interviews, each with a reporter from a state with a Senate Republican incumbent up for re-election. The interviews are an obvious effort to put pressure on Republican stonewalling the nomination process. The White House press secretary announced that they hoped this would impact the constituents of the senators and that the White House was going to continue to apply pressure to Republicans to do their job. A man from Connecticut stole a police horse for a drunken joyride, as the 41-year-old man reportedly works at the police horse stables. He returned to the stables after work while intoxicated and took one of the horses for a ride for around the city of Hartford. Hartford police received a number of calls about a man in a cowboy hat who was riding a horse and holding up traffic. The horse, named Hansen, was not injured and was in good spirits. The man was charged with disorderly conduct. And finally, scientists have discovered three potentially habitable planets. An international team of scientists announced that they have found three planets capable of sustaining life. The planets, currently called the Red Worlds, have the potential to sustain liquid water and life, as they all have regions with temperatures that fall below a balmy 260 degrees Fahrenheit. The Red Worlds are located 40 light years from Earth. The planets were discovered using a telescope in Chile. Those are the updates for today. Back to you, Matt. Thank you, Jameson. Uh, great uh, recap of the news in celebration of World Press Freedom Day. Appreciate that. Um, so somehow, Paranormal Day and World Press Freedom Day. Yes. How did they fall on the same day? They just picked a day. What are the odds that you could ever find a news story that would mix news and possible paranormal activity? Well, seeing as we're in the middle of an election season. Wow, yes. Not really that difficult to do. <laughs> Just give it a day. So Donald Trump this morning alleged that Ted Cruz's father uh -huh. was with John F. Kennedy's assassin shortly before he murdered the president, parroting a National Enquirer story claiming that Rafael Cruz was pictured with Lee Harvey Oswald handing out pro-Fidel Castro pamphlets in New Orleans in 1963. A Cruz campaign spokesman told the Miami Herald, which pointed out numerous flaws in the Enquirer's story, that it was another garbage story in a tabloid full of garbage. Here's the quote from Donald Trump this morning on Fox News. His father was with Lee Harvey Oswald prior to Oswald's being shot. I mean, the whole thing is ridiculous. What, what, what is this right prior to his being shot? And nobody even brings it up. I mean, they don't even talk about that. That was reported, uh, and nobody talks about it. But I think it's horrible. Right. There was a picture out there that reportedly shows um, uh, Raphael Cruz standing with Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, what, I was, he doing with, what um, was he doing with Lee Harvey Oswald right. shortly before the death, uh, before the shooting? It's, it's Crazy. horrible. So wow. reporting, <laughs> and of course he doesn't say where it came from, but the National Enquirer is where this is coming from. Wow. The same stories came out about Ted Cruz cheating on his wife. National Enquirer. Yeah. I wonder, it seems weird, I wonder why this is all being brought up today. Indiana primary. Oh, maybe that's why. And Trump needs to win Indiana to basically stop Cruz from doing anything. So Donald Trump, but he, I'm sure he didn't say he heard it from the National Enquirer. He said, you know, people are talking about I mean, he attributes it to some general person somewhere talking about something, but it's National Enquirer. And why this fits is because World Press Freedom Day, no press agency other than the National Enquirer has had more paranormal head or covers on their magazine than National Enquirer. Well, there's some other tabloids in the U.S. that are. Yeah. Well, and then there's UF, UFOs Are Us. Yes, that's a good one. Fantastic read. Right. 
Um, but what do you think? Is uh, apparently Mr. Cruz was hanging out with Lee Harvey Oswald. I mean, could you tie it to a wor- <laughs> to a worse scenario? Handing out pro Fidel Castro pamphlets in 1963 is the allegedly where the the picture and the association is. Well, he was probably doing work Christian work, trying to convert Castro. Well, and that kind of fills into the rest of the tangent that Trump goes on, where uh, they the what Fox News played a clip of Ted uh, Rafael Cruz from a pulpit talking about basically voting a vote for Ted Cruz is a vote for God, essentially. Oh yeah, and that the uh, the alternative to, uh, instead of he goes, I'm convinced that a man that that man who will save us is our son is Ted Cruz. The alternative could be the destruction of America. Asked to respond, Trump called it a disgrace. I think it's a disgrace that he's allowed to do it. I think it's a disgrace that he's allowed to say it. He said before touting his support from Jerry Falwell. So Trump supports his religious support as, you know, it's this whole thing of mixing your religion and politics and trying to um, trying to espouse that someone is chosen (laughs) to be the the leader (laughs) over somebody else. To, to curry vote. Right. You know, right. To, to get favor in a, in, a, in a primary in Indiana. I, I just have this bigger sense. After our second hour of the show where we talked about uh, heaven, proof of heaven, and the author from proof, proof of Heaven, I'm starting to feel like God's not in this election anymore. <laughs> just that he's tired. Like, eh, I'll let them handle this one. Maybe. Yeah, because this is the craziest election ever. Now we have Ted Cruz's dad being blamed for being or accused of being with Fidel's or uh, what's his names? John F. Kennedy. John John Harvey, Lee Harvey Oswald before he killed John F. Kennedy. That's just crazy. Yeah. Or paranormal or whatever. (laughs) It's just it's. It's nonsense. It's nonsense. But again, you have Donald Trump saying there are reports. Why? I don't know why more aren't talking about it. Because well, it's in the National Enquirer. Why? Would, I mean, I get why he's doing it. But really, honestly, you bring this up. I mean, really, you would ever. So let me just get this straight. As you're being briefed as president of the United States and you have your briefing on the, the most important, dangerous things of the world, you're going to put your feet up on your um, – just on your magazine table in front of you, and right there will be a National Enquirer in the I Oval guess. Office. This is twice now that he's gone to the pages of the National Enquirer to uh, find evidence against his opponent. Did you? Let's get more some more paranormal. <laughs> uh, a gym is being accused of being offensive for an advert claiming an ET invasion is the best reason for getting in shape. This is so offensive. A billboard uh, is, is it? In, yeah, I mean I it's know. funny, but if you're overweight, that's just a, it's just a cheap shot. If we are invaded, if you are so, if we are invaded by if a hostile aliens, alien force comes to this planet, and the, you're not ready for it, you're not ready for it. This says they'll take the over. They say the fat ones first. That is just rude. <laughs> you can't say that. You can't say that. It's a 20-foot-high advert in the town of North London, and it's promoting a gym called Fit for Less Gym. Hmm. But you can't have an advertisement saying they'll take the fat ones. You can't say that. 
That's why the city council's mad. They were just saying, hey, it's a lighthearted and humorous thing. We're just trying to be funny. Hmm. But if you're a little overweight or even overweight, that's just offensive. Yeah. They're going to take the slow ones first. That's the easy. Yeah, that, that really they're, has nothing to do with your weight. They're not going to pass, you know, a slow person. <laughs> Think of everyone you could offend. They'll take the old people first. They'll take the young. <laughs> They'll I take just, I the just National love there was Enquirer. A 20-foot banner with this on the side of a building. <laughs> Paranormal. <laughs> One way to sell your goods is to always you know, tie it to the paranormal. Offend as many people as possible. That's a great business plan. <laughs> yeah. Holy cow. It's a crazy world we live in. Anyway, let's get to the real uh, let's get to the real work we've got to do as parents. Um, Julie K. Nelson will be joining us. She, she has a website, a spoonful of parenting.com and uh, many books. She's here today to talk to us about behind every great kid is a pushy parent. Three parents push or sorry, successful parents are gonna push in these three ways. She's gonna teach us how to uh, push our children gently healthy in a healthier direction for life stick with us folks doing what we can to uh, give you a leg up in your parenting this is the matt townsend show we'll be right back welcome back friends to the Matt Townsend Show. Okay, so how do you lead your kids, is a, a gentle word. How do you push your kids to success without being pushy? That's a, it's a hard question because, you know, we could demand it. We could starve them. Some parents try that. We yell. Bribe. We bribe. We complain. But the reality is... A lot of these are just going to not create a successful child. They're just going to have a child that pulls away from their parent. So joining us today, Julie K. Nelson. She doesn't put the K in her name anymore, but I do. Uh, she's got a great website, a spoonful of parenting.com. And um, she's going to teach us today, by the way, two books, Parenting with Spiritual Power and Keep It Real and Grab a Plunger, 25 Tips for Surviving Parenthood and just basic plumbing 101. <laughs> Julie, welcome to the show. Thank you. You're here to teach us. Yeah. Teach and, us how uh, to push without being pushy. Yeah. yeah. Are you a pushy parent, Matt? Uh, only when I have to be. Yeah. And I'm really not. But I'm more kind of reactively pushy. So if something is obviously awry, then I push. But usually I just kind of suggest or if it's something that is really a core value this this has to yeah. happen you, you know, can't you can't lie you can't do you can't hit your brother we had well we we were on the court last night and one of my sons started lo losing and took his shorts off we can't run naked through the you neighborhood. can't run naked through the neighborhood mm -hmm. but I, I didn't even have to push him i just grabbed the shorts and we ran inside <laughs> and he will never do that again yeah, you know, I, I have I have um, now elderly parents. I look back at my childhood and my siblings, and I look at now I've raised most of my kids now, and they've all, you know, to adulthood. And I look back, and what are the ingredients to raising successful kids? And there's a lot of ingredients. But I look at my mom, who never gave up. 
I mean, she just never gave up. And myself, I think about how many times I had to push my kids to get something done. You got to go out there and get a job when you're 16. You know, and they didn't want to. And I'm just like, I'm driving you there. You're going (laughs) to fill out that thing. You know, and they were, you know, all those things. There's just, there's so many, I couldn't even tell you how many times I've had to be the pushy parent. And so I want to talk about how. Let me give an example yeah. of, of how it me- what it means to be a pushy parent. You find those things that you really believe in. Um, my mom really believed that we should be able to stay our, keep our heads above the water. And so she really thought that having some swim lessons would be necessary for our survival. Sure, you don't want to die. We don't want to die drowning. Um, in fact, she when she was younger, she was raised in this town with very, you know, nobody knew how to swim. Evanston, Wyoming. I mean, <laughs> Were they heavier? Than, were they like... <laughs> Thick, dense <laughs> bodies that didn't swim. They just, you know, cowboys. They just didn't get into yeah. swimming pools. Yeah. But they, they, um, she took some lessons, and there was kids around that didn't know how to swim, and one of them started drowning and pulled her under. Oh wow! And because she knew some survival skills, she knew how to get out of that situation. So she vowed that her kids would, you know, never, you know, have the, you know, the risk of being drowned. So she's yeah. like, you're going to take lessons up to junior life. It was called junior life saving. She's like, once you pass that class, you can be done. I hated swimming. I did too. I hated it. I hated the walking in that room with all the noisy kids and all the, the chlorine, the chlorine smell and the, the dirty pool, the, the water and the, yeah. oh, and, and diving for those rings. Oh, I hated, I hated, I hated those rings. Keeping my eyes up open yeah. underwater and going yeah. down. I just hated the whole thing. Well, I would look up at her and she'd be there at every lesson cheering me on up in the balcony and I would look up her and glare. I mean, glare. Mother. Like, how dare you make me yeah. do this? You, yeah. I hate you. Yeah. And she just wave and smile hey, back. Okay, I keep, you know, and well, right around the time I started junior life saving class, the movie Jaws came out. Remember that? Oh yeah. I mean, you know, back in the day, that was the scary. Oh totally. Show. Even if you were just in a pool. Yeah. And after I watched that show, I was pretty much traumatized for life, <laughs> and I couldn't take a bath, right. let alone yeah. go back to my swimming lessons. And at that point in our lessons, we were doing the diving off the board, mm-hmm. and I remember them holding this bamboo pole across the front of the diving board, and you had to like arch over it and then dive. And I remember looking down in that deep abyss oh, yeah. and think, and all I could see was this jaw's mouth right wah, there, wah. waiting, wah, 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 waiting to, for me to dive into wah, its wah, mouth. Wah, it was, wah. it was yeah. horrifying. I couldn't dive. You didn't do it. I, I couldn't. It was, it was, I was scared out of my mind. That's where you start throwing up. Yeah. And well, everyone's like, out of the pool. No, and I, like, was, I was the one that had to back up off the, the diving yeah. board and it was humiliating. Yeah, I hated that. Oh, so point is, is I would whine, I would cry, I would say, Mom, I can't do it. And she wouldn't flinch. She just said, we're going to get you through no, this. No, we'll do this. We'll get this. And I eventually passed off the class and then I was done and I never swam again. Well, I, I shouldn't say again for many years. Have you? When was the last time you swam? <laughs> the point of the story is, Matt, is guess what I do about three times a week? Uh, I go to the fitness center and I swim for exercise. Do you dive? Do you dive in yet? I I don't love. I, don't I, I love. In. You know, I'm just uh-uh. I'm just exercising. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay? You're just yeah. But the point is, is like I know it. how to do all the strokes. I'm a pretty proficient swimmer because of the lessons that mm-hmm. she taught me. And I look up in that little balcony up there. There's no one there now, and I smile and I say in my head, "Thank Thanks, you, Mom, Mom. Oh, for not giving cool. up on me." That's right. Because I enjoy swimming now. I love it. And I you actually love drowned. it. That's and what's I, yeah, great. that's the important thing. And so I made my kids swim. They didn't like it either. Right. But it's just one of those things I want you to be safe. It's a life skill. It is a life skill. And so I think that being a pushy mom or dad just requires that you stay true to the things that are the most important in your life. And you have some courage, you have some fortitude, you get a backbone. And 
you know, when life gets hard, kids tend to give up. They do. They don't want to take out the gro- the, the, the garbage. They don't want to do their homework. They don't want to finish lessons. Right, right. You know, you start, they get some idea, I want to learn how to play the guitar, and then two guitar lessons later, like, okay, this, I'm is, done. Too, this is too hard, you yeah. know. And so you have to kind of teach them to stick with it. Um, I love this quote. Someone said, my kids told me that I'm the meanest mom in the world and I'm freaking out. I don't even have a speech prepared. <laughs> Meaning, you know what? For Mother's Day, I want to say, I want to do a shout out to all moms yeah. and dads out there. Sometimes you're called the meanest parent in the world. Take it as a compliment. Oh, yeah. You, you know, take a bow. But then you thank get a call. Thank your audience. Then you get a call. Or I just got a letter from my son that is living. He went on an LDS mission. And it's one of those moments where it's thanks, dad. You were incredible. Yeah, and I had a daughter who pushed back a lot. Um, she was one of those types yeah. of girls, and she's as well in Russia right now. And she has written so many letters back saying, "You are the best." I love how pushy. I, I'd give I, anything if I you could push you. me today. You are the best ever, and thanking you. Looking yeah. back, and the days when you're with them, you're thinking, "Why am I doing this?" But later on, they always do the "Thank you, mom, for not giving up on me." And so I want to talk about three ways we can be okay. pushy. First one, to push them towards those good things. Yes. All right. So, I mean, I know a parent who the, the five-year-old didn't want to take their medicine. They're, they were sick. They went to the doctor. Right. They got medicine, and the child didn't want to, so the parent went, okay. You know, no. I'm like, no. Some things are hard. Some things don't taste good. Some things are boring, like brushing your teeth. And some things hurt, like getting your shots, your immunizations. But we're doing But those. you do them anyway because it's good for you. So you just, that's where you should be pushy. Yeah, on those basic things that are good just things. important for you. Good yeah. things. So, uh, you know, and... My, my, for example, my sister has taught piano for over 30 years. I talked to her about this, being pushy, because she has the, the profile of the parent who the children do well in piano. And I said, what is the profile? She said, it's not the children who are geniuses or protégés right. or whatever. It's the mom and dads who just say, you got to practice every day. It's going to be boring. Yeah. In fact, they all say it's boring and hard to practice. It is. She said she only knew in those 30 years, she only knew two kids that actually liked to practice. Most <laughs> of the time, things in life are boring and hard. Right, right. And then you have those bursts of exhilaration when you actually perform. And nailed it. When you do your thing. But after year after year, day after day, it's pretty much boring and hard. Yeah. You know? And then you get some, some payoffs sometimes. But you just got to teach kids to not give up. My child wanted to do a paper route once he signed up for a year contract he would deliver the paper after about two days he's like i'm done i'm like (laughs) you know what this is not exciting to to throw papers you know after after school but we wrapped the papers i helped him with the rubber bands and packed him up you know yeah and he finished it out but it was the the worst year of my life he would come off the bus and fall off onto the ground and go i don't want to do the papers (laughs) like you know you made a commitment so he did it for a year he delivered those papers he got paid a little bit but he learned to get through now after the next year I'm like you don't have this anymore but he learned how to get things now I wanted to find pushy here pushy does not mean controlling does not mean helicopter parent super rigid tiger mom heaping your standing over heaping your unrealistic expectations on your children to be who you never were I'm talking about mentoring I'm talking about encouraging well but pushing them to do what they committed to do you said you're going to be on the team you're going to be on the team yeah and do it for the season and then you can be done no but you know doing your lessons Mm -hmm. getting your homework done taking your medicine this is stuff we just got to do in life good stuff let's take a break Uh, We're speaking again with Julie K. Nelson from a spoonful of parenting.com. Go check out the website. By the way, two great books you could buy your mother for Mother's Day. I mean, then, you know, or your wife. Mm -hmm. 
you know. They're really, it would be like a gift to them saying, I believe in you. Parenting with spiritual power, mm-hmm. keep it real and grab a plunger. Just go to the website. You're a great mom. Of Here you go, mom. Thanks so much. Here's mm-hmm. a book. Hope you can learn some more about being a parent. <laughs> Just great stuff. We'll take a break, folks. More with Julie when we come back. This is The Matt Townsend Show. Stick with us. to the Matt Townsend Show. In studio, Julie Nelson from a spoonful of parenting.com. She is a, uh, uh, has a master's degree in marriage and family and human development and teaches classes as in uh, parenting and marriage and relationship skills at Utah Valley University. She's on faculty there. And today she's talking about uh, how to be, how to push your kids without breaking them. And one of the things you've already taught us is push them towards good. Sometimes you got to do hard things. Take your medicine, get to class, do your grades. You got to do your homework. You got to push sometimes because those are good things. Yeah, all the good and basic things in life. And I always said to my kids, and some of them didn't just would rather just sit around and watch, you know, cartoons, cartoons all day long, and their their brain turned to mush. And they'd rather do that than mow the lawn. And so I'm like, you know what? You've got to go out there. And I I always had a rule: they had to try out for being one involved in one extracurricular thing. I don't care if that's drama, if it's music, if it's sports, but be involved beyond the classroom doing one thing. Oh, see, that's I, so pushy, I would, Mom. Oh, gosh. But and that's so healthy. It's so healthy to be involved. And my now I have a little – my littlest one has grown up. He's 14. Now he's in junior high. Yeah. And the oldest ones are all telling him. They're all like now the sage-wise adults. They're like, oh, Mom, make sure that he's on the da-da-da team because I know how important high school right. it is that, that they be involved beyond the classroom. Don't you love their advice the team now? team yeah. experience and stuff. And so they're now saying with their advice for sure. So some, some kids like to do it all, but my kids tend to be more – more, you know, awkward, shy. I don't know if yeah. I can do this. And so I had to push. No, you go out and try right. that. And if one thing doesn't work, then try something else out. Um, so That's that good. was our first one. Now, push away from bad would be the second one. Okay. Um, I don't want to be all push, push, like, you know, that kind of parent that all pushing them towards things. But also there's a lot of things that are pushing against us in this life. I think there's a lot of um, bad influences. Yeah. And we have to push them back from them, push them away. So um, like drugs, like yeah, exactly. pornography, all push. I'll push, push it away. Yeah. Um, too young of kids should not be having data, um, Wi-Fi, you know, because then you can just download that stuff on right. their phone. And you have a six-year-old that can have access to pornography on their phone. Sexting is a real big deal. Um, and they you start getting these, these influences young. And even in your home, there should be uh, some limit on media time. And I think media should be out of the, of the bedrooms. Yeah. I think you should need to push away from the bad. Um, I mean, I had a... a neighbor just told me last week that her senior in high school had a friend who it's his birthday coming up and so there he, she's like what are you gonna do for the birthday well we all of our friends our buddies got together we decided that since he's turned it's gonna be like midnight and then 1201 will be his birthday time so we're gonna go take him at 1201 and we're gonna go out and party all night and she's like you're mm-hmm. gonna do what yeah we're gonna go out for breakfast at 2 a.m nothing and good gonna... happens after 11 that's right she said you know last i checked we're your parents and i don't know what other cool beans your friends have for parents but we don't allow that we're not okay yeah. with that you can take him out for breakfast at 5 a.m or 6 yeah o'clock. you can get up all as early as, as you early want. as you want but you're not going at right. one o'clock two o'clock in the morning 
morning to take him out for breakfast. You know, you got to push back for some of these ridiculous things mm-hmm. that kids come up with. How about your 12-year-old driving? Yeah. Because he was pushing on that one yesterday. <laughs> exactly. Kids. So, you know what? Have a backbone, parent. Push away from the bad. Um, there's a wave of filth that's threatening our family. So say no, even if everyone else's parents. It's funny. You know, they always say everyone else's parents are doing it. And then I talk to their parents and the parents are like, heck no. No way. You know, they just We've say just that. Been, yeah. They say that. But it's not true. No. And parents need to unite because mm-hmm. if we would talk more, we might realize the kids are playing us. That's right. They are. Wicked. When I get parents together, they're like, I didn't say that. No. And they're like, oh, brother, you're in trouble. You're a liar. So last one is pushback from pressure. Um, we've Like my kids, I did have to push them towards doing some extracurricular and some things outside of school to build their character and yeah. get some team experience. But some kids they are extremely talented and they are extremely driven and they want to do it all. And I say to those parents that if they do like to excel at everything, you could create these this superstar mentality of perfectionists, which is not good at all. Children need to have a childhood. We don't want to overbook their lives or have them overbook their lives and try to be on every team and do on the student council and in the honor club and straight A's. And I mean, at some point, you have to push back from the pressure of competing with the overachieving friends. Yeah. Well, and you know how many kids I've seen that were incredible athletes but pushed so hard that by the time they got to high school to prove it, they were they were burnt out, and yeah. they just quit everything. Yeah, and and it's there's just too much a mentality of I have to get better than and bigger than and smarter than everybody else. If that's your drive, then that may be too much pressure for yeah. to put on children. Um, and parents can be a good buffer on that. When my kids get peer pressure, and they call, so can I sleep over at Johnny's or whatever? I always ask, do you really want to sleep over at Johnny's? And if they say, well, no, then – or anything other than yes, then I say, no, you got to come home. Mm-hmm. Because there's a lot of pressure. And if kids are around, then if it's me saying, no, you can't sleep over, then I know – because he may not have the voice to say it. Yeah. He may not know how to say it to certain friends. Well, and I had a, an ecclesiastical leader tell me that they saw too many kids – have some really ugly things happen in sleepovers yeah. and advised us as parents not to do that. So that was one thing I had to push back on pressure or push away from the bad, we should say. And we just made a rule of no more sleepovers. Oh, my gosh, you should have heard the whining and complaining oh, I'm sure. about, don't you trust me? You don't trust the parents of the, my best friend. Oh, I know I trust them. <laughs> yeah, they're, everyone's great. But I had to just push back and say, you know, no, no good thing happens at 2 a.m. And so you can stay up and have a late night and then come home at midnight and go there for breakfast the next morning. Right. But we're just not having sleepovers. And I had years of misery. But, you now they all thank me now because they had really good childhoods and now nothing yucky that's happened. That's the key, right? Yeah. I mean, yeah. the pushiness is to create a healthy, resilient child with a safe history. Yeah, exactly. So push back from pressure. Um, let them be have a childhood. I think that successful kids, great kids, means that they lead a balanced, happy, well-adjusted life and have a childhood. They need playtime. They need laugh time. They need, need creative time and social time. They don't need to be super rock stars in everything or else we they, a lot of anxiety, a lot of perfectionism, a lot of depression that comes out of that model um, where we have to push back from the pressure of overachieving. We don't need more rock stars. <laughs> we don't. We really we don't. don't. They just we've got plenty, and they they seem to live. Yeah. I mean, Kiss. Those guys are living forever. <laughs> yes, and Mick Jagger. Mick Jagger. Yeah, but those look people at him. are never going to die. Oh my gosh, what a life! Well, we appreciate it, Julie. Yes. Wrap it up. What's your favorite? What's the one thing we should always remember when it comes to parenting and our pushiness? When your kids say you're being a mean mom, 
moms, remember, take it as a compliment. Know that you're doing something right and you're in good company with everybody else. We're mm. all just doing our best at holding up what we know is best for our kids. But be flexible. If he, if a child really, really isn't doing good well in that sport, you know, once the season's over, have them switch to it. My son played in, an instrument, piano, and it wasn't working for him. So I said, pick another instrument. He did French horn, did great. You Bingo. know, but, but he picked something um, that was uncomfortable for him. But, you know, I didn't give up and say, well, then don't have to do anything at all. Right. Because if it's, you know, if kids are left their own devices, they'd rather just sit around and just eat chips oh, yeah. and watch cartoons all day. Sounds like a great We got to get them to get out of their comfort zone. You got to do something. And yeah. sometimes a little gentle push helps. Mm-hmm. Appreciate you. Uh, great work. Julie K. Nelson, go to her website, a spoonful of parenting.com. Don't forget your mothers either, folks. Have a happy Mother's Day. Have a happy Mother's Day and get her, get them a book. Yeah. It would be a really great vote of confidence for them saying, hey, mom, this is how much I love you. Yeah. Thanks. Thanks so much. You killed it. Uh huh. Good job. Julie, thank you. We'll take a break, folks. Come back, visit our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation. Stick with us, folks. It's getting close to the time where we just bid farewell. But we got 15 minutes, so stick with us. This is the Matt Townsend Show. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everybody, to the Matt Townsend Show. A little E.T. music as we celebrate Paranormal Day. And how better to celebrate Paranormal Day than heading down to our good buddies at BYU Sports Nation, Spencer and Jerem. Hello, gentlemen. Spencer, phone home. (laughs) Baby Drew Barrymore. Spencer, phone home. Hey, um, it's Paranormal Day, boys. All right. I don't sense excitement. Jerem will be watching uh, all 17 Paranormal Activity movies tonight. Really? What yes. is your favorite Paranormal Activity movie? Ooh. I've never seen it. Mine is Independence Day. Oh, I feel you. Does that qualify as Paranormal? Doesn't that have a... Doesn't that have... Isn't that Will Smith? That is Will Smith. And don't Welcome they have... to sp- Earth. Yeah. But don't so they blow up, Don't they blow up <laughs> aliens? Yeah. That's extraterrestrial, not paranormal. Yeah, paranormal would be like ghosts, no, the other but, side. Oh, yeah. is, oh I M- thought there was something is, uh, else. Wasn't there something else weird with that? Okay, the maybe Sixth not. Sense is probably mine. Oh, I hate those kind. I hate that movie. Mine is uh, Cypher in the Snow. Movie. Ooh. No, it's not that one. It's uh, Lord of the Rings Return of the King. Really? Is that oh, yeah. paranormal? Yeah. He goes to the mountain. He summons the dead. Oh. And they come and fight. Bring out your dead. Minas Tirith. Mine is Monty Python. Where they sing Bring Out Your Dead and yeah. they that's paranormal. That's a paranormal part of a movie. We're talking like a movie. I don't I'm qualify not, as paranormal. These are from the dark side. I don't like Mine this. Was paranorman. Oh. Cartoon. Sort of. Claymation. <laughs> right? Interesting. Claymation, <laughs> yeah. Paranorman. I mean, is there a paranormal stage of Star Wars? Best paranormal. Well, what would make somebody in Star Wars, yeah, like Use a, the Force, uh, Obi Wan Kenobi, Use the Force, from Luke. the Dead? Yeah, that would on, be freaky. Blair Witch Project, you know what I'm yeah. Saying? But you got him on the hologram. The Sixth Sense, Ghostbusters. Uh, uh. Ghostbusters is my favorite paranormal. Who are you gonna call? Ghostbusters. 
Hey, um, there's a remake coming out this summer. With, I know uh, it's gonna be fantastic. Fantastic. Hey, here's a question <laughs> like for you. We had, with them females. We had a debate earlier that I need you guys to help us with. Because you guys work What's out. Up? You guys are fit. Um, let's just say... Well, you all right? Oh, yeah. Okay. Um, let's just say that uh, aliens attacked mm-hmm. Earth, mm-hmm. like Independence Day. And um, th- there's a fit... There's a gym in the UK that have basically offended a lot of people because they put up a billboard that's about 20 feet high and the billboard says um you better it's basically says you better get in shape because aliens are coming and then the line says they're they'll take the fat ones first is that true i think they're trying to be humorous and i you know I appreciate their. Who, who do you think the aliens are going to go after first? Doing the, that. Do you think they're going to go after the smart ones? No. Are you or the dumb ones? The, the less powerful ones. Who would they be? Like the president, Donald Trump. <laughs> Donald Trump. <laughs> You're fired. Next I would time. win an election in the Vatican. <laughs> Thank you, Donald. <laughs> Spencer Trump. <laughs> Um, he, got, he got an endorsement from great college football uh, legend I Lou know. Holtz yesterday. Lou Holtz. Lou, even Lou's in the game. I love Trump and Trump Hotel. I stayed at Trump Hotel. <laughs> <laughs> and I love Lou Holtz. He's and fantastic. it was first class all the way around. <laughs> you guys, you're not making fun of a guy with a lisp or a, a, whatever. No, it's not a lisp. It's just, it's it's just, Lou, just Holtz. It's Lou Holtz. It's Lou Holtz, man. And everybody Doug loves Spino. Lou. And, yes. Yeah. Everybody loves Lou. Oh, Lou. He's great. Now, Questionable steak and hotel choices, but yeah. We need, you know what we need? We need you guys to, do, um, to lay down a little Lou Holtz for us so we can use that <laughs> later. So we'll, we'll have you do that later. I, I endorse President Trump. Because I stayed in this hotel recently, and everything was first class. <laughs> I seriously you. thought about uh, having Spencer record a whole like series of things like, Lou Holtz sings this, <laughs> like the Cougar Fight song, yeah. and it's on YouTube. Rise and shout. Yeah. Shoot your shoot out. What's yeah. up, guys? Yeah. That's Lou fantastic. Holtz quotes famous movies. <laughs> You know, that it'd be really fun. Sometimes, sometimes I'll be like, Spencer, do Bill Walton doing Lou Holtz as Adam Sandler. Like, oh, like so he'll pick a line and then, yeah, there's, there's the voice versus the intonation versus the idea. Hey, we haven't talked about that. By the way, it's a fantastic idea. Um, we, what do you think about uh, Walton? What's his name? Luke. Luke. No, Luke Walton and the Lakers. I think that the Lakers are Desperate for something that will work, <laughs> and I don't know if Luke Walton is. Well, the ha- I think they've well, had nine. He's young. He's just young. I, I mean, he had success earlier this year with the Warriors. The past Who yeah. wouldn't have success with but the Warriors? I think I could have coached that team yes. to a lot of wins. <laughs> yes. Not taking anything away from Luke Walton right. and the fact that he's a great basketball mind. Yeah. Like right. he's a really smart dude. A lot of coaching nowadays, especially in the NBA, is just motivating, managing egos, and motivating, and just harnessing uh, effort. Mm-hmm. Right. So, okay, in this set of time, let's focus on this and then re-engage certain ideas. Like, okay, let's get back in transition. Let's hustle. Here we go. Right. Here we go. Like, they're getting paid a lot of money to just be life coaches. But see, it seems like 
you Steve Kerr had a lot more going for him with however many championships. What ten, eight, nine? He had <laughs> uh, no. He had yeah. five. I mean, he had he at least a bunch five with the or and six. The Spurs. And yeah, and the Spurs. Yeah. So, but he's also was iconic, right? Uh, I mean, he's he's got a a pretty touched life because of his family history. I don't know if you know the whole story about his dad dying in another country. Anyway, but. Um, Steve Kerr was very iconic. I don't TV Luke, analyst. Luke, helped yeah, Luke Walton, just son of the other Walton. Son yeah. of Bill. Son Young. of William. By the way, apparently, like the ninth, the ninth Laker to coach the Lakers. Yeah. Which they like to stay true. But, yeah, they they're like BYU, where it's like Kalani Stuggy's back. He's one yeah. of us. Bring him back. Great. Yeah. Yeah, it's like I don't know what the it has something to do with it. Bring like, him yeah. out, bring him out. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Jim Harbaugh in Michigan. Yeah, he's our guy. What, yeah. what, um, what are you guys talking about on your show? Today's a uh, an important show. Eric Mika is back from his uh, LDS back. mission to Rome. One week off his mission, he'll be in studio. Wow, he will be in studio. A lot of people are excited about at Irk ninety five. Yeah. Also, it's Taysom Hill. <laughs> The 22nd best college football quarterback in the country. I think that is ridiculous. Yeah, the Sporting News came out with the list. Great analysis by Lou Holtz. Yeah, came out with the list. Taysom Mills, number 22 among all <laughs> FBS quarterbacks, which really? we think is way too low. So we're going to tell you where we think he fits. And does Tanner Mangum deserve to be on that list? Back to you, Reese. <laughs> <laughs> we're capturing all of these. We will, we will be using these. We need a towel yeah. to clean up over here. <laughs> clean up on the BYU Sports Nation set. Yeah. Did you knock over any of your your bobbleheads? Nope. Did not do we that. We don't have it. Do we have a bobblehead? We ain't got no bobbleheads up here. We need Spencer and Jaren bobbleheads, but apparently they're, like, really expensive. Well, yeah. yeah and why get, why get a fake when you've got two legits already on the <laughs> desk? They, they said uh, you could have one less camera on the show. Or, or you could have bobbleheads. So we're like, well, let's keep the camera. Don't worry about Budgetary it. Budgetary concerns. We'll find you one. I'll find you a bobblehead somewhere. Thank Guys, you. Sounds like a great show. And are you going to use any Lou Holtz um, You never know. Accents. Matt. We just kind of keep it, you know. Keep it real. Keep it, keep it real. Yeah. And, uh, you know, when it, it, it is what it is. It, it's That's exactly right. As they it, say. It is exactly that. It is what it is. Hey, guys, have fun and happy Paranormal Day. Thank you. Thank you. And may, you know, may the ghost not get you. This may the is... poltergeist oh, there's a, oh. reside yeah, with there's you. One. Blah! That's a scary one. This Kay. is our Independence Day! <laughs> Again! In the second movie coming out this summer. Settle down. Settle down. Peace out, yo. See you, Matt. Bye. See you, Lou. Good talking to you. Good stuff. He does a great Lou Holtz. Lou Holtz is a really... Hard uh, voice to do, impersonation to do. Because it's more than just the lisp. you got to also know the sports content. Come on! Hey, um, Florida hunters have killed a massive 15-foot alligator that was snacking on cows. Holy cow. Jimmy, where'd the cattle go? I have no idea. I just left them out by the lake. Two hunters tracked down and killed a 15-foot alligator. Uh, the 800-pound monster gator was shot at Outwest Farms, an alligator hunting company in Florida. Lee Lightsey, who owns the farm, 
and Blake Godwin, a hunting guide, discovered the alligator in a cattle pond during a guided hunt on April 2nd. Lightsey and Godwin said the gator had been eating their cattle. We also discovered the remains of what were determined to be cattle in the water. And we determined that uh, he was, um, in fact, attacking our livestock as they would come to drink. Yeesh! Scary. And you thought you had it bad. Listen to this crazy story. In the coach a cop section, well, not a cop, a con. We're coaching a con now. Sheriff's deputies arrested a Florida man who reportedly broke into a store, then sprayed himself with fire extinguishers in an effort to elude capture. Authorities say on March 4th, Anthony Dixon, 18, turned off the power to the family dollar store from the outside. He then used a cinder block to break the store's front glass window. Deputies were alerted to the break-in by a 911 uh, call and then saw Dixon running from the store. A subsequent search for the suspect led to deputies uh, to an area where a large amount of white powdery substance had been sprayed, as well as two spent fire extinguishers stolen from a nearby apartment complex. Tips from the bystanders eventually led deputies to Dixon, who noted that he had white powdery substance on his legs. They took Dixon into custody without further incident. Now, why would a guy spray himself with a fire extinguisher? Hey, just a little coaching for you. Don't do that if you don't want to get caught. He must have, you know, maybe he had a burning rash from running so far. Our hero of the day, folks, as you know, we like to end the show on a hero story. What could uh, be more motivating than that? Boxer Sugar Shane Mosley is our hero of the day. He turned into a hero on the L.A. highway. Listen to this story out of CBSNews.com. He's a world champion boxer who's won eight belts. But today, when he saw a four-car pileup on 405 freeway, it wasn't about being a champion anymore. It was about being human which is why Sugar Shane Mosley immediately stopped for help when he saw the wreck. Uh, he said, you don't know if the car is going to catch fire or what's going to happen. Then seeing there's a baby in there, Mosley remarked to the station. He said, a baby was in its car seat screaming and bleeding, and the car driver, the baby's father, was so out of it he couldn't unlock the door to get the baby. Mosley added, uh, Mosley and his girlfriend called 911 and finally got the baby out of the car and held them until paramedics arrived. The baby was crying and bleeding. His neck was bruised, Mosley said. Mosley grabbed the baby bag from the car and then followed the ambulance to the hospital. Along the way, Mosley's girlfriend called the baby's mother, who is pregnant with her second child. They got to the hospital and thankfully found out everyone will be okay. Mosley tweeted his reaction. He, he, the father, was crying, saying, You guys are like an angel, and thank you for helping me and being there for me and protecting my son. Mosley recalled. Anyway, there you go. Sugar Shane Mosley. This is the Matt Townsend Show, folks. We're going to uh, sign out until tomorrow. Make a great one and uh, watch each other's backs. Take care. We'll talk again tomorrow.